your ride ready for spring driving with Dobbs Spring Break Deals. Money saver deals you can use on Goodyear, Pirelli, Cooper, Michelin, and General Tires. Expert auto service, too. Click on GoToDobbs.com for spring break deals now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. Chris Taylor and the Dodgers took down the Braves to force a game six in that series. Atlanta still up three to two with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. We are live at the new E and B granite studio at the Centene community ice center. Alex, there is something about being clutch and I'm not trying to pull the old skip Bayless clutch gene here, but I don't know what that means. There is something to the idea of a, player performing when the lights are the brightest right it's why we had so many talks about hey what is what is the cardinals offs or postseason results mean offensively for them are there are there guys on this team that maybe don't show up in the when the bright lights are the brightest i think the answer to that is no because it was just one game but when you look at the postseason this year whether it be chris taylor who's certainly on this list eddie rosario showing up in big moments jock peterson always seems to have playoff moments Kyle Schwarber Carlos Correa there's a lot of guys that have shown up this year that have done this in the past as well I am curious for you and for our audience 65780 is the air comfort service text line how much do these performances play into how much you would like the Cardinals to sign these types of players it plays into everything I mean I'm I'm all about bringing in somebody who can perform on the highest stage because that's the ultimate goal the goal is to get to a playoff and win the playoffs and you want to have guys who can get there and I understand you're in a situation where yeah you got guys who haven't been there before and that's the point you want them to have that opportunity right Chris Taylor doesn't turn into Chris Taylor until he gets the opportunities to be with the Dodgers but there's a track record that goes with it as well. Like, I remember, not to tie it into hockey, but I remember Pavel Dimitra's narrative was he was so good in the regular season but could never score in the playoffs. 
and people were frustrated with it. Then you look over to another player, and you're like, oh, this guy always does it in the playoffs. Albert Pujols, a guy who always seemed to perform clutch in big-time situations. So for a guy like Chris Taylor, I think it plays into a lot, at least for me, the need of that player in the offseason. Because when I see a guy like Chris Taylor who continuously hits home runs, Corey Seager's the other one who wins an MVP, not just in the NLCS, but in the World Series, I say those are guys you want because, one, they've been there before, two, they've won it all, and three, they know how to perform on the big stage. Yeah, I... I don't know that Chris Taylor fits what the Cardinals need necessarily, but God, do I love that guy as a player. Like, when he was coming up in the ninth inning against the Cardinals. More than J.D. Martinez? Oh, that's a good question. More than Harrison Bader? No, come on now. Okay. So we know what the threshold is, T-Bone. Yeah, that, that is the bar. When he came up in the ninth inning against the Cardinals, not just because Alex Reyes was on the mound, but because it was Chris Taylor, I assumed something bad was about to happen for the Cardinals. Because that's just how it works with Chris Taylor. When you get to the postseason, even after he had been slumping, he had been terrible. He lost his starting spot down the stretch for the for the Dodgers. And still, when the playoffs began, boom, here comes playoff Chris Taylor again. Same thing's true for Jock Peterson. I feel like every year you turn on the playoffs and there's Jock Peterson hitting another massive home run. Cody Bellinger's the other one. Absolutely, and he was terrible all year. One of the worst everyday hitters in the sport, and now he's great. So when I look at these guys, I do think it makes me more interested. Now, it doesn't change the fact that, like, Chris Taylor or Eddie Rosario, Jock Peterson versus whoever your favorite shortstop is from this year's market. No, like, it's not going to weigh that heavily. Corey Seager, he's done it. Sure. But Trevor Story, for example. Yeah. If Trevor Story becomes the most likely candidate for the Cardinals, I'm not going to pick one of these guys just because they're performing now over Trevor Story. But if Trevor Story then gets out of my price range and I have to kind of go to that second tier, guys like Jock Peterson, Kyle Schwarber, Eddie Rosario, you could do a hell of a lot worse than them as intriguing pieces to what the Cardinals are building. Especially Kyle Schwarber. Like Kyle Schwarber, I think, has just risen his stock this offseason because of or this upcoming offseason for what he has done with the Boston Red Sox. You could say the same with Jock Peterson and Eddie Rosario, but Kyle Schwarber, for me, that's one that's interesting because he's always done it, but yet he... Like, he's done in the regular season when he was traded to Boston and even when he was with Washington. Remember, we were talking about Kyle Schwarber hitting home run after home run after home run. But to do that on the biggest stage is important. And you said something in the open, BK, which kind of hit me. The Cardinals, some of the guys, yeah, it was their first time, but they got a track record going right now, which is why I think this offseason's impactful when you look at the guys that are going to be available and what they're doing this postseason. I mean, Paul Goldschmidt was with the team in 2019, and he wasn't any offensive help. Tyler O'Neill had been basically scratched from the starting lineup in playoff opportunities because they didn't feel like he was going to be impactful. Harrison Bader's been in them before for this team. So they've had guys in the big stage that haven't performed for them, which is why this offseason, in my opinion, is impactful. And T-Bone, you can give me your thoughts on this one. But this is why I say Corey Seager is a necessity. Carlos Correa is a necessity. Kyle Schwarber is a necessity. Eddie Rosario, Jack Peterson. I put those names before I bring up the name Trevor Story because not only do they do it in the regular season, but they do it on the big stage, which is the next step for this Cardinals team. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I understand that argument of, you know, I want someone that has the track record in the postseason. But to be fair for stories, like he just hasn't been there that often. In fact, I think he's only been there, what, twice in his career? 
if that. So I think it was two wild card games, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I I don't really look at for certain players. I do want someone that I know can perform in the postseason. So yeah, Seager to me, he's the number one guy because he's the left-handed bat on the shortstop market. I think you need a left-handed hitter, and he's done it in the postseason. But if, if you told me, like, I, I had the choice between Trevor Story and, uh, say, Kyle Schwarber, maybe that's my two options in the offseason now, I would still take Trevor Story because, A, he fits my uh, the biggest hole in my roster, and, B, I, I don't really read into his postseason history, mostly because he hasn't been there but twice. <laughs> okay, but let me – and I know this isn't a scenario that happens, but in that scenario, Story's a shortstop, and it makes the most sense for you. But let's say Kyle Schwarber's a shortstop, or let's say Trevor Story's not a shortstop, and both are the same available. Both are DH slash outfielders for you. Wouldn't you go for the guy who has more postseason reps underneath his belt and more experience and success in the postseason than a guy who hasn't been there before? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you're telling me, hey, I've got two players that are similar in terms of how they performed in their careers, and they play the same position, they're going to fill the same role, one guy has done it in the postseason, the other guy hasn't. Yeah, give me the guy that's done it. Like, of course, that's going to be a tiebreaker for me. The problem, though, is other teams feel the same way, and then it becomes more expensive. Yeah. So now it's a cost proposition of, do I take the guy that's done it in the playoffs for $25 million per year or the guy who hasn't for $18 million per year? And then what am I getting with that extra seven? That's the difference that could help my team. And does that help me more than the guy that had done it in the postseason? I think that's a fair question to ask. But to your point, like, yeah, if it's a tiebreaker, absolutely. The problem is the guys that we're talking about right now, like they don't play shortstop other than Carlos Correa and Corey Seager. And those guys are going to get paid at the top of the market because they've done it because you get into the playoffs and you know what you can expect out of players like that Alex I got a question for you it, it, let's say it is let's say we kind of have this as our scenario where it's coming down to story Schwarber and I get it not the same position but Schwarber has the postseason track record story does not but let's say story's numbers are really good with runners in scoring position then how does that factor into it because for someone like a Trevor Story, even a guy if he struggled in the postseason, if he historically has numbers where he's able to come up in the clutch or he's able to come up uh, with runners in scoring position throughout his career in the regular season, I think it's just a matter of time for that guy to come through in the postseason. And I would consider that guy, I would put him on the same tier as maybe someone that has postseason success but just has doesn't have as good a uh, resume in the regular season. Yeah, if it comes down to it, and those are my options, I'm going with Trevor Story because that's the biggest hole that I need to be filled. And I don't care as much of Trevor Story not performing on the biggest stage in this scenario because I want a better shortstop for me. I want a consistent threat in my lineup. But, I mean, the way I've looked at it is if I'm going shortstop as my number one priority, I'm going to narrow through these guys before I move on. And I think if it's Story or Schwarber, that comes down to price for me. Because if if Story's asking the same amount of money that Corey Seager and Carlos Correa are wanting, I'm not paying him that. But if I can get Trevor Story on a one- or two-year deal for a – I know these aren't what they're called in baseball, but it's in hockey – the bridge deal, right, the prove-it deal. If I can get that and it's not overwhelming in terms of cost, yeah, I'm taking Trevor Story over Schwarber. But if he's out of my price range, I'm going to pay for Kyle Schwarber. Because, one, it also fills a void in terms of an every game at bat for me if the DH is there. But, two, that's where it gets into the postseason experience. Yeah, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show throughout the day today from the 314. Guys, you're talking about a part-time player 
guys like Kyle Schwarber just aren't going to have the same impact as Story or Seager. So maybe not so much anymore. Kyle Schwarber, if he was signed by the Cardinals, the expectation should and probably will be He's your everyday DH next year. Yeah. He's coming in and he's batting, what, fifth in your lineup, probably going into next season? Yeah, frankly, I might be looking at hitting him one or two also I mean, for how could, he's been performing with Boston. He's been great as a leadoff hitter. He's not a prototypical leadoff guy. Obviously, you can look at him and see that, but he fits. He hits he, a home run. It, it works really well for him. So if you wanted to do that, I'd be open to it. I think a. Edmund, Goldie, O'Neal, Arenado, Schwarber makes a lot of sense because you've got those switch hitters and then a lefty between the right-handed hitters at two and four. So I think it could work that way, but I wouldn't view Kyle Schwarber as a part-time player. He's a DH. And does that give you less value than an everyday player that's out there in the field? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at a premium position. And that's why he won't be paid accordingly. But he is such a good player and he's become such a dangerous threat at the plate that what we're watching in this postseason absolutely makes me more interested in a guy like Kyle Schwarber than I would have been prior to what we've seen so far from him in the playoffs. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We are broadcasting live from the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. In about 15 minutes or so, we'll catch up with our guy Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. But coming up next... Did Case Keenum and Baker Mayfield change their narratives last night? I think one went in one direction. The other, unfortunately, went in a very different direction. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. I mean, let's be honest. The elephant in the room is that Baker Mayfield isn't much better than Case Keenum anyway. Remember what Case Keenum did in 2017 in a run-centric offense when he was able to defeat Drew Brees in the playoffs. Case Keenum has done this his, this his entire career. He's a guy that's smart. He has a lot of the football acumen. He'll get him into the right place. He won't put the team at risk. And he'll give them a chance late in the game to figure out a way to win it. It's funny. That's basically the way that it went. And that was Bart Scott yesterday on Get Up with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Case Keenum looked fine last night. He didn't look good. He didn't look great. He was no world beater, but Case Keenum was fine. And he gave the Browns a chance to win against a mediocre Denver Broncos team. Tanner, Alex, did you end up going with the Broncos in that one in our pick? Nah, I went with the damn Broncos. Me I did too. too. I didn't expect Cleveland to come out ahead in that one, and their their defense was very good, and their offense did just enough. I am curious, what is this going to mean for Baker Mayfield long-term? Because Baker has not played well this year. He had the record-breaking rookie season, and since then he's just been okay. He's been solid. I think I'm a bigger fan of Baker than most seem to be. And I really loved this Browns team coming into the year. But if he's out for an extended period of time and Cleveland's upcoming games are against the Steelers, the Bengals, the Patriots, the Lions, if they go three and one or four and oh in those games, Alex, do you think this changes the way that Cleveland should view Baker Mayfield as their long-term quarterback? I think it should change it definitely. But I also like, let's pump the brakes here a little bit on Case Keenum and Baker Mayfield were the same player. Like Case Keenum 
threw barely 200 yards, one touchdown. The story of that Browns game was the fact that, one, they almost lost the game, and two, Ernest Johnson was the star of that one, what, rushing almost 150 yards? He's great. Like, let's chill on the Case Keenum's just as good as Baker Mayfield. Like, Baker Mayfield's a little bit better than Case Keenum. But I do think the narrative of Baker Mayfield this season has been he's not the guy for us moving forward. But I don't know what that means for Cleveland because – they're not going to be getting any first overall draft pick anytime soon. They're not going to be going with this new young player unless they go after a guy like I mentioned yesterday, Tua, and try and set the tone. But they're in win-now mode with their roster. So what about I, Rodgers if he becomes available? Does Rodgers want to go to Cleveland? I don't think he would go to Cleveland. He apparently has interest in uh, going to Pittsburgh, so... Maybe Cleveland would be similar in terms of situation? Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know the whole ins and outs of the organization, but sure. I mean, for me, it would seem like if you're Aaron Rodgers, Cleveland doesn't seem like the best destination to go that. to. But whereas Pittsburgh or even Denver is a little bit more desirable in terms of the the place where you're going and the people that are around the organization. But I really don't know what this means for, for Baker Mayfield because it does seem like he's not going to be coming back to Cleveland. Although if Cleveland can find an upgrade he might be their best option. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't know if they can really bring him back, but if they can't find somebody, then sure, you can go to the uh, franchise tag with Baker and try and get another year and figure out where you go from there. I, I wonder if they make a move. Like, I, I expect Carolina to maybe move on from Darnold after this year or like Bridgewater will be gone or Locke will be gone from Denver. I wonder if they look at one of those kind of middle-tier quarterbacks and try and just – do that for now until they can figure out a way to get that franchise quarterback. Am I crazy, though? Baker's better than Sam Darnold. I agree. Like, Baker's better than that. Baker's better than, better than Teddy Bridgewater. I think the, the question that I have about Baker is not whether or not he's a top 20 to 25 quarterback in the league. I think we've, we've come out on, on the answer is yes. He is a top 20-ish quarterback in the league. Can you win a Super Bowl with that? No. Can you win a Super Bowl with a guy that ranks, like, between 15 and 25, depending on the week? And I think that's right now where I would put Baker Mayfield. I think I'm with you, Alex. I, I'm not sure you can do that just because of how loaded the AFC is right now with quarterbacks. Now, I do think if you're if you're somebody that believes the other side, you're probably looking at the Eli Manning model. I'm not sure Eli was ever a top five quarterback in the league, but he won two Super Bowls. How did he do that? Because he had a great defense and he came up with clutch moments in the postseason. So maybe that's the model for Baker Mayfield. But if I'm the Browns, I can't count on that. And so this offseason, if this is the way that things continue trending and the, the Browns continue winning with Case Keenum at quarterback, I think I'm with Tanner. The, the best way forward is let's buy ourselves one more year. We do what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did a few years ago with Jameis. Let's franchise him. Let's see what this ends up being. And if he's not great next year when he's fully healthy, and that's the big thing here that's the caveat. He just hasn't been healthy this year. Mm -hmm. If he's not good again next year when he's fully healthy, we probably need to look for the next answer. And that would mean getting aggressive. I don't know who the guy would be, whether it means going to the market and finding another quarterback from another team, or if that means trading up really high into the draft the way that we've seen from other teams in recent years. Whatever it ends up taking on in terms of the effect, I think that's the way that they have to move forward. Because Baker Mayfield, while being fine, I'm not sure that he's the answer for a Super Bowl contender unless he ends up taking another step. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. And look, if you're if you're Cleveland, you you know that you are in this winning window right now, and I don't think you can let this go by. Like you spent money to upgrade your defense, and their defense has been fine this year. It hasn't been setting the world on fire, and their offense. I mean, look, their running backs can't stay healthy, but when at full health, I don't know 
how many offenses can compare with what weapons that Cleveland has with Landry, OBJ, T. Higgins, and then on top of it, or not T. Higgins, um, Rashard Higgins. Thank you, Rashard Similar. Higgins, and then uh, and then Chubb and Kareem Hunt. So yeah, I, I think you have to find a better solution at the end of this season. So that's the game that happened last night. We do have a full slate of uh, games this weekend. Although there are six teams on by this week, so if you're somebody playing fantasy football, it's a rough week for replacements. Let's get to the weekend look ahead for the NFL. That was cool. You can cue music? Hey, man, this is what I'm here for. Alex, what's the game you're most interested in watching this weekend? Ooh. Tanner, what's your game that you're most interested in watching this weekend? (laughs) While Alex pulls up the schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is Cincinnati and Baltimore. I I think this one. Oh, that was mine. Dang. I I really think that. There's only like two good games. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There's not very many to choose from. But I I am interested to know how Cincinnati performs against Baltimore. Because, like, they're one of those teams that I'm still, like, on the fence on. Are, Are they really a playoff team? Or is this just something that, yeah, we're six games in. Is this just kind of an unrealistic expectation for me for them moving forward. I'm interested to see how they play against Baltimore on the road. So that's the one I'm looking forward to. I had mine pulled up. You jerk BK. Oh, did you? Yeah. (laughs) The Chiefs and Titans were the one that I was most interested in because I I think this is one of those games where if the Chiefs lose, people are going to start having a lot bigger questions about this team. That's fair. Because Tennessee does not have that great of a defense. And I feel like that game is going to be a shootout. But I also feel like the the better portion of the Chiefs' defense is the fact that at least they have Chris Jones in a, in a front defensive players who can stop the run or at least try to stop the run. I know. I can't believe I'm saying that because it's awful. But their secondary is even worse. I don't know. And then Derrick Henry's about <laughs> to run all over these guys. And I think Tannehill might have a good game. That one, for me, I think does two things. One, it makes you question the Chiefs, and it also makes you wonder if the Titans are much better than what we thought they were at the beginning of the year. I mean, those are the two games. Like, if you're watching football this weekend, just take the 3 o'clock hour off. There's no reason to... Whoa! Uh, great, I'm home by three. then. Eagles-Raiders, I think, is going to be a decent football the game. Raiders, and that, that's the one the that I was going to get to. It's not going to be a good football game. It's going to be sloppy. It's going to be horrible defense. The quarterbacks are liable to throw four picks in this game. I love good defense. And yet I'll watch it. I'll watch it because it's going to probably be like 38-31. I don't know who's coming out on top in this one, but I would say that's probably the third best game of the week, which should tell you everything you need to know about how bad this slate is. Our favorite and friend of the show, Lou Korak, just texted us, and he said, how can you guys not be fired up for Falcons-Dolphins? Exactly. Good point, Lou. There's like four games that when I'm watching Red Zone on Sunday – I don't want to see any of them at any point in time on the screen. Like Jets Patriots just don't even show up. There's games me. there's games during the red zone that they don't show up for like a good 40 minutes. I'm like, oh, that game's still happening? Don't show me the Texans when they have the ball against the Cardinals. You don't I see, don't want to see the Lions when they have the, the ball against the, red the Rams. Zone? And I don't want to see anything about the Bears when they have the ball against the Bucks. Let's be honest. I just don't need to see it. The T-Bone's picking and, the Lions over no, the Rams. No, the Lions and Goff won't see the red zone this weekend. Exactly. I bet you Matt Carpenter's money that they do. I'll take that bet. You're never seeing that. All right, what's the upset that you're picking for this weekend, boys? Any any individual teams that are sticking out to you right now? I think I might take the Bengals over the Ravens. I don't know how much that's an upset to some people. It's a six-and-a-half-point line, so it's a big one. I I, I really think 
I think Cincinnati might be able to put on a little bit of an offensive show against Baltimore. Tanner, who's your West Coast team traveling to the East that you love? <laughs> I don't know. If, is there really one going out East? I don't think there is this well, week. Aren't, aren't, the, aren't so. the Lions Sadly? going to the Rams or are the Rams going to the Lions? No, the Lions are going to the Rams. We're oh, safe well, there, there you go. That's East to West. I think one that I'm going to take, and it is in... I don't know how much of an upset it is because both teams are below 500, but I'm taking the Colts at San Francisco. I, I think on Sunday Night Football, with Jimmy G coming back, I just don't know how healthy he is, and with him missing some time, I don't really buy into him having a good game. That's a Midwest team going to the West Coast. At night. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough, though. I, I think I'm going to take the Colts over the 49ers. I feel like th- for some reason I have a feeling they can beat them. This week stinks. This week sucks. There are so many bad games. Uh, Give me the Eagles over the Raiders. Do I believe that's actually going to happen? I don't know. Probably not. But uh, go ahead and give me the Eagles going into into Las Vegas. I'll I'll go ahead and take that one. I think if you're looking for any upset that's most likely to happen, it's either the Bengals over the Ravens or the Titans over the Chiefs. I think those are the two games worth watching because the underdog actually has a real shot of winning them. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. In 15 minutes, we're going to talk about the Cardinals potentially trading Paul DeYoung and what kind of value he would have on the market. What would you want to get in return? Uh, We'll talk about that in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. Blues are going to be without their two big offseason additions tomorrow night. What does that mean for the lineup? We'll talk to JR about it next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend and the Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. He is Jeremy Rutherford joining the show. JR, what's going on, man? Not too much, boys. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing fantastic. Never been better. JR, did everything uh, Did everything stay in Vegas? <laughs> oh, some of the pictures so. that I saw from JR last night. I think there were a few things that came back with him. He sent you those pictures? Hey. Yeah. Barnes was hey, out there with him. <laughs> let's say hey, let's get, get get this in the open. I don't want anybody thinking anything bad. No, it just had some. Uh, show, show, show <laughs> I should <drills>. clarify. <laughs> yeah. Come on, he's a happily married man with two beautiful kids at home. BK, stop painting him poorly. <laughs> that's that's totally fair. That's on me. That's bad uh, bad job by me. Nothing horrible happened. I was kidding. I did enjoy though. <laughs> Jr. always has fun with his pictures. Just like his family is hilarious with reactions. And Jr. sent or posted the picture of Vegas. And then the caption with it said, sent this to Sarah. And then what did you say? Sarah basically just hung up on you? Yeah, I think I got a middle finger emoji uh, back. <laughs> and anytime I send her pictures, send my wife pictures of like palm trees or sun or anything, pools, swimming pools. But but no, I sent BK a picture last night. Uh, you know, it was a uh, showgirl and. And uh, I said, uh, just following Brad Barnes uh, to the game here. Uh, Sounds about right. <laughs> it was impressive. It, it they was have them at the games in Vegas, so it just it's easier that way. Hey, Jr. The Blues are three and zero, and they're going to be coming back home for their the home opener tomorrow night. They're going to be without Pavel Buchnevich, and they're going to be without Brandon Sod in this one. So the two big offseason additions, they're not going to be able to play in this home opener. What do you think the lineup looks like with those guys out tomorrow night? Yeah, how do you like to be Doug Armstrong and the Blues? You go out and bring in these two new players. It's kind of like uh, you got people coming over to see your brand new car, and everybody shows up, and you got a, 
a crack in the windshield and, and a flat tire uh, on opening night. You know, you want want these guys to be in the lineup, and obviously they'll probably be at least uh, Bucinevich, not Saad because he's in protocol, but Bucinevich will be there to receive a round of applause, I'm sure. But in terms of the lineup, guys, you know, I think they'll be on the ice here in about 20 minutes. We'll get a look at the lines. But what I would guess is that I, Ivan Barbashev will climb up the lineup. He's been playing really well. In the past, he's played with O'Reilly and Perron, so I could see that as a possibility. And although Jake Neighbors started the last game uh, with uh, Shen and Kairou, Costin moved up there later on, and I thought he looked really good. So I think there's a chance that, that Costin could play on that second line. And then you'll probably just get Kyle Clifford in the lineup. Uh, unless they call somebody up, I would imagine that Clifford will be on that fourth line and get a chance to play his first game against his former team, the LA Kings. JR, have you heard anything about Brandon Saad, if there's any symptoms he's dealing with? And kind of a two-parter here, are, are there any concerns of this carrying over into more of the players? Because we saw Colorado, Landeskog was in COVID protocol, and then Jack Johnson was out the next game. Yeah, nothing confirmed on uh, on Saad in terms of uh, symptoms. Uh, but that's the big fear, Alex, is uh, who else? I mean, the team is just coming off that team bonding trip you know, last week in Vail, and then obviously they were on the road and, and hanging out a lot together. So, you know, right now the number is just at, at one, but I guess we'll have to pay attention to uh, the, the Blues and that list here in the next couple of days, and you cross your fingers uh, that they're okay. But, uh, yeah, you've seen it with Colorado. Also, I think Seattle had a situation where they had a number of players as they were trying to get their inaugural season going, a number of players test positive, and then came back with a negative test. So we'll see what happens with Saad after yesterday's announcement that he'll at least miss the opener. JR, I, I should know this. What's the protocol for this this year? Is it, is it 10 days if you're experiencing uh, symptoms? Well, yeah, if there's symptoms, then you're going to have to go into the isolation. And, and uh, you know, obviously a positive test will lead to that. So I don't think much has changed on that front. But, uh, you know, the big thing is everybody's vaccinated or at least 99.9 percent all the blue all the blues definitely be case so you know this could be a situation that the blues have listed sod and in, in protocol it could be a situation where you know perhaps he, he tests it in the next uh, 48 72 hours and, and things change but we'll see so jr we saw this offense when at full strength it is going to be the the best part of this team this season but after watching them in three games on this road trip, what's your general takeaway from the, the core of forwards that Craig Berube and his staff have on the ice? Alex, that's the biggest thing. And, you know, as I watched this team in all three games, you know, I, I get that, you know, it wasn't clicking all the time in all three games. But for the most part, you couldn't take your eyes off the game, in my mind, because there was a chance for every line to score. And, and I think... You know, you think about that Stanley Cup team, and they came at you in waves. But they, they, were, they were finishing checks. They were hitting. But generally speaking, it was those top two lines, you know, that, that did the scoring. This is different. I mean, when you have a Robert Thomas and a Vladimir Tarasenko and an Ivan Barbashev on your third line, or you have a Jake Neighbors on your fourth line like we saw the other night, I mean, there's just the chance that these guys are going to put the puck in the net no matter who's on the ice. And to me, that's what really stood out, especially in that Vegas game. I mean, I know Vegas was without a couple big players, uh, but the Blues attacked Vegas, and we saw what, what Tarasenko is capable of. So, you know, are, are they going to score every night? Are they going to put up five, seven goals, you know, like they did on this road trip? Probably not, but I think they've got the potential to be really strong, and it's because of that depth. 
JR, we're now, what, a week into this season. What's your biggest takeaways from the Central Division? Because I know Alex has been over here telling me, or basically since day one, hey, you know, Colorado might not be as good as we think they're going to be. Winnipeg's had a tough start to the year. Are the Blues going to be higher in the ranks in the Central than we expected coming into the season? Yeah, I think early on. I mean, I, I will say we all know this. It, it's still way too early to kind of start evaluating things. Uh, you look at Colorado, they, they were without McKinnon and Landskog. They get those guys back. But I think even, you know, before they lost those two players, there's some people around the league who feel like uh, Colorado might not be as good as they have been in the past because of the losses that they had with Donskoy and Graves and, and Saad, and they changed out the goalie. Um, so I still expect Colorado to be up there. I really do. And, you know, Winnipeg did some things in the offseason. You know, even though it's been a little difficult start, I think they'll be good. You know, I, I like Minnesota. I like what, uh, what they're doing. Um, but I do think, circling back to the Blues here, is that that depth, especially up front, and if they can get Bennington to have a solid season, which he's off to a great start, you know, I think they can be up there in that conversation. So whereas you kind of looked at the Blues as an afterthought, at least a lot of people around the league did, uh, I think that, even though it's a small sample size, I think what we've seen is some pretty good hockey. So uh, I would suspect that uh, they'll be in that running, in that conversation, you know, top three teams or so. JR, speaking of Bennington, uh, I saw that you had a piece out on The Athletic this morning, and I've seen a lot of different people talking about it. Their sources saying that Bennington's on a, a six-player list for the uh, Canadian Olympic team as one of the goaltenders. His play so far this season has been towards the top in the National Hockey League, especially against the Vegas Golden Knights. Are we seeing a Jordan Bennington that's saying, forget about the last couple of years, this is who I am? I think so. And you know what? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like for the last year, even though Bennington's numbers haven't been there, I've been continually saying that I like him. I think that he's a strong goaltender. I think he's top third in the league. I think he can still be that guy. So, you know, I just see so much of this flash in the pan, one-year wonder, you know, 0-9 in the playoffs the past two years. And we watched every game. The three of us did, and the team was not good in front of him. And for many of those games, he was not good. But to me, this isn't a situation where it's 2019 Stanley Cup and we're never going to hear from Jordan Bennington again. And, and we all know what a personality he is in terms of uh, he pushes himself hard. And, and with the chance to make the uh, Team Canada for the Olympics, Doug Armstrong and his crew, his staff making the selections. You know, I think we're going to see a really good Jordan Bennington. I think he's off to a great start. You know, everything I heard, he put in the time in the offseason. I think this is a goalie who's still capable of carrying a team like that. You know, it's finally going to be a normal 82-game schedule, we hope. And I think Jordan Bennington has gotten himself prepared for that. Final question that I have for Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter, at J.P. Rutherford. Jay, I feel like the number one question we've been getting in recent days after Vladimir Tarasenko's performance against the Vegas Golden Knights is, hey, if this is the Vladdy that the Blues get, does it change anything in terms of their, their interest in trading him and his interest in going anywhere else? Uh, what, what would your answer be to that question? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I mean, if you can get a Vladimir Tarasenko who's playing really well uh, and can help this team, and let's just say he puts up 25, and with that chemistry with Robert Thomas, you know, Thomas finally takes that next step. Can you really pull Tarasenko out of that lineup and trade him? You know, I guess it depends on what are you getting in return. If you're getting a top-four defenseman or you're freeing up some salary to be able to go out and get a, a top-four defenseman, 
at the trade deadline, you know, however it could shake out, then I think you consider it. The, the, the bottom line here is you can look at it both ways, but the bottom line is, does Vladimir Tarasenko still want to be traded? And if he says yes, then you have to, you, you have to execute that trade when it makes the most sense for the Blues. And if he's on fire and he's going through a three- or four-week stretch where, where he's putting up the numbers, you know, I think you have to consider it because what happens if that falls off? What happens if he gets injured and then you're unable to move him? You know, I think this is a difficult challenge for Doug Armstrong. When is the right time? You know, I, I just think they're going to have to feel it out as the season goes along. He's Jeremy Rutherford, rather. Find his work over at The Athletic. Jerry, we always appreciate the time, my man. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. That's JR joining us here on 101 ESPN. You know, the Tarasenko, what he just said there, I really didn't even think about that because you do have to look at the situation of what if he drops off and you don't want to miss out. a re-injury? You don't want to miss out on an opportunity. I still go back to the deal that Tampa Bay pulled off with Montreal and Jonathan Druin. Like, you got a top-two defenseman in Mikhail Sergachev who has been a part of two Stanley Cup championships for a guy who wanted out and had one good year because he wanted out and now has been a, a not a bad player, but an average player with Montreal. If you have the possibility to pull off a trigger or pull a deal off and get a top-four defenseman, maybe a younger guy who turns into an elite defenseman or maybe just somebody who's who, who could help push towards the Stanley Cup, you can fill the void of Vladdy at the forward position you can't fill the void of a top four defenseman. And if Vladdy is playing out of his mind right now, you might want to look at something because you're going to get your best asset back. Yeah, I've I've always been of the belief that this is something that needs to end as soon as possible because there's just so much risk. The longer that it goes, whether it's Vladdy's not playing well or Vladdy gets re-injured or uh, there's some kind of a break between the two sides, whatever it may be, there's just more risk the longer that he's here. And so I'm very happy to see that he's playing as well as he has been. And I'm very happy to see the way that him and his teammates have seemingly yeah. embraced one another through all of this. But I, I do think that it's for the best for everybody. We'll talk about this a little bit more later on as to what the Blues could get in return for him. But I think it's for the best uh, <laughs> if they decide to break this relationship as soon as possible, even though that's hard to do while you're watching him perform. Especially well if the, he's a team ice. player. And, and we've heard guys talk about it. So, I mean, you do have to take that into consideration impacting the locker room if they do get along with Vladdy once again. But With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, do the Cardinals need to bring in a veteran fifth starter it's something brad thompson talked about yesterday we'll talk about that at the top of the hour but coming up next if the cardinals were to trade paul de what kind of value would he have on the open market and more specifically kind of like the vladimir tarasenko conversation what would you want to get in return we'll talk about that next on 101 espn this is exactly where you want to be listening to us it's pk and ferrario live from the car shield studio on 101 espn for Paul DeYoung here in St. Louis. I think we've all kind of moved on, but I don't know if the Cardinals have or not. But let's assume that they're on the same page as us. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon You know what Kylie. assuming does, BK? Makes an ass out of both you and me. No, just you. There's no me at the end of that. 
If the Cardinals do decide to trade him this offseason, Alex, what do you want to get in return? Because I'm looking right now at some of the teams that had the worst uh, OPS from their shortstops this year. You're looking at the Angels, the A's, the Pirates, the Twins. Uh, Maybe one of those teams would have interest in a guy like Paul DeYoung who could bounce back. I look specifically at the A's. He feels like a prototypical Oakland A to me. He's got a lot of power. Um, If they feel like they could get him back to where he was a couple of years ago, maybe he is worth that $15 million over the next couple of years. It's cost controlled. They make a lot of sense as a potential landing spot for Paul DeYoung. What do you want to get back? If if they decide to take him on, what are, what are you looking for if you're John Mosellock? Well, I would be looking for one of the things that I'm trying to check off on my off-season to-do list. And I don't think you're going to find a shortstop in Oakland because you're trading Paul DeYoung over there. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to get back an impact bat that you want. So what I would be looking at is I'm going to go after a bench bat that I feel like can be a good option for fill-in opportunities and can come off of the, uh, the bench mid-games. Or I'm looking for a piece to my pitching staff that I can add into it. And and frankly, Oakland might be the best place to go if you're looking for pitchers because they've had a lot of them grow through the system and turn out to be very successful. I know one name that has been brought up in the past is Sean Manea. He's been a name. He's been a former top prospect. You're going to need to include a lot more for him. Maybe. Paul DeYoung, Andrew Kisner, and one of your top pitching prospects, probably what I'll take for, for Manea. Zach Thompson? I, I don't know if they take to be him. one of the other guys. Yeah. Well, if it's not him, there's somebody on that roster that you can make a move for to add to your pitching depth. And for me, if I'm John Mozeliak, I check that off of my offseason to-do list, and then I can allocate the $35-plus million that I have this offseason to other areas that need to be fixed. Yeah, I'm looking to maybe acquire a bullpen arm if I'm going to move Paul DeYoung. I think you've brought this up in the past, BK, where it was – Kind of try, see if you can do this like the Luke Voigt deal, where you move on yep. from a guy that can be a productive hitter, and maybe you get like a Giovanni Gallegos back in return. So if it, if it's me, my hope would be if I'm trading Paul DeYoung, I'm hoping to get maybe like a middle relief, maybe high leverage reliever, uh, right-handed guy that throws gas. And if if that's maybe maybe you shoot for maybe like a another just a kid in the minor leagues as to bring it back in this as well. If you can only get just a middle reliever, though, I think that works because again, I think I said it yesterday. I you really need this bullpen to be about six pieces deep like you had at the end of the regular season or at the end of the yeah, at the end of the season. So why not see if you can do that here in the offseason? You move on from Paul DeYoung, a guy who clearly needs, I think, in my opinion, a change of scenery, and you get a lethal weapon in your bullpen possibly. So that's what I would look for. Yeah, I would be looking for the next Tennessee Cabrera, the next Giovanni Gallegos, whoever that team is that you identify that's like, hey, they've got a guy that's on the cusp. We haven't really seen a lot of him in the big leagues just yet, and maybe they don't value him the way that we do. Do what the Rays did for Randy Arozarena, but on the pitching side of things. Whether that be starter or reliever, I think I would honestly prefer a reliever because they have so many options in the starting market uh, right at the cusp on tri- in AAA. I would like to see them identify a middle-inning reliever, like Tanner mentioned, to get back in return for Paul DeYoung. I think this could be a one-for-one type of a deal. I don't think you need to expand it. I think if you're going for another bat or another bigger pitcher, maybe that's where you go with Andrew Kisner or you start looking at some of your top or higher-end prospects. But for the Paul DeYoung deal, I think this is where you try to get cheaper, younger, and more cost-effective 
I think you're trying to find a bullpen arm. I think that's best case scenario. It's kind of like what we were talking about in the offseason with Vladdy Tarasenko, Alex, where I said, you know, that as much as this is about getting something in return for Vladdy, it's really about getting that money off of the books to allow yourself more flexibility. That's kind of how I feel about Paul DeYoung. I think there's better ways for the Cardinals to spend that $6 million next year. So if you're able to get him off of the books, you get a, a quality reliever in return that's going to be at the big league club for a million dollars. Now I've got that $5 million to spend on another bench bat. Maybe that goes to a guy like Eddie Rosario or Jock Peterson or whomever, and they take up that roster spot and that money allocated on my roster. I think that's probably the best case scenario for the Cardinals going into the offseason. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, a Ferrario 5 with the five most impressive Blues players on this road trip. But coming up next... Do the Cardinals need to bring in a veteran fifth starter? It's something that BT talked about yesterday on the fast lane. I want to get your thoughts on this, Alex, on the other side here on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. So we've been talking about what the Cardinals should do this offseason. We've been focusing on the shortstop market. We've talked about the bench bats. We talked about relievers in the last segment. You got to add some depth to this team. What do you do for your fifth starter spot? With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center on a Friday morning before the Blues are uh, getting re- ready for their home opener tomorrow night. And BT had an interesting comment yesterday. He he came into last season expecting the, the Cardinals to have great depth pitching-wise. And he doesn't want to fall into the same mistake once again in 2022. Here's what he had to say on the fast line. I like the arms that they had, but I like the arms they had last year. And then what, what situation? You're coming out of spring. You had two different starters that you did not expect to be in the rotation that were in your rotation. Right. And you were kind of scrambling all year. And then Jack got hurt. And by the grace of Adam Wainwright, you had a chance to, to be able to you know get to the postseason because he took that whole team on his back and said, boys, I got you. Well, I don't want to have put that on Adam Wainwright again this year. Yeah. So I like the arms you have, but I still want to be able to add to it. I'm- Alex, where are you at on this? Do you want them to go out there and acquire another arm to be at the back end of their rotation? Or are you good with them going into camp and saying, you know what, this is going to be a tryout. Whoever the best arm is out of Libertor and Woodford and Oviedo, Reyes, all of those guys that are at the cusp right now, either in the big league um, bullpen or down in AAA as a starter, all of those guys are going to fight for one spot in the rotation. Are you good with that going into next year's camp? Well, I think it depends a little bit because it it, it depends on the pitcher you're going to bring in. Like, if you're going to go get a Marcus Stroman to be a part of this rotation, which I, I know BT even said yesterday on the crossover, that's like a long shot because he's going to be a lot of money. But if you're going to go spend $15, 20000000 million on another pitcher, no, I'm not in on that because to me that's – Yes, it was the issue last season because of all of those injuries, but it, it wasn't the biggest issue, in my opinion. Like, I think the area you need to fix is, is your offense. Um, if you can go get a guy like a John Lester or a Wade LeBlanc or a Jay Happ or somebody along that status who can be a glorified four or five starter for you and it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg, then, yeah, I'm fine with it, but as much... I do look at this pitching staff going into next season, and I understand it's what we did this past year, but, I mean, fluke injuries happen. 
I look at it and I'm thinking, man, this is a pretty darn good lineup on top of having five or six guys that you'd like to see. Like, I kind of would like to see what Jake Woodford can do in a rotation because towards the end of the season last year, he looked better. I would like to see what Johan Oviedo can do if you don't trade him because he started to improve in Memphis last year when you sent him down. Libertor destroyed AAA hitting at the end of the season last year with Memphis. I'd like to see that. So as much as I think you could get a, a, a piece to help add to your rotation, I think it's more important, in my opinion, to go out there and find some bats to help this team. Tanner, where do you fall on this? I think you need to bring back one of those veteran starters, whether that's LeBlanc or Hap or Lester. I, I personally would want, uh, I love my guy LeBlanc, but he dealt with an elbow injury at the end of the year. So I would look at John Lester, that veteran presence. I think we had Robert Murray on a couple weeks ago, and he said that he had heard that John Lester enjoyed his time here in St. Louis. So let's, I, I, to me, bring him back. Just bring back one veteran starter. Have him kind of penciled in as that fifth guy because, to me, you need to have about nine starters ready for a season. And if I look at the Cardinals now, you've got the four that are locked in. And then, to me, I'm not gonna, I'm not heading into this season assuming that Alex Reyes is A, a fifth starter, or B, even a starting option. Same with Jordan Hicks. I am heading into this season assuming that they are going to be relievers, and if they overperform in spring training and prove that they're starters, then that's like, that's that's awesome. That that's something that I hadn't planned for, but I and that and that's going to help us out. But I don't want to head into this spring training planning on them being starters because after seeing them this year, Hicks dealing with injuries and Ray is just having walk issues. I don't think you should go into the season planning on that. So then bringing in Lester, then I have three other guys in the minors that I'm willing to consider my depth and Libertor, Woodford, and Oviedo. To me, that would be fine. To me, you just cannot head into the season saying, all right, we can throw Rays and Hicks in that conversation. We're 11 11 starters deep, and then you take out a veteran presence. You're at 10. To me, you got to go add one of those veterans back. I think I'm with both of you guys. I, I would like to see them go out and sign a starter, but we can go ahead and write off the top of the market. I, I don't think this team's going to be playing for the likes of Max Scherzer or Carlos Rodon, Kevin Gossman, Robbie Ray. Those are the top four starters on the market, and I don't think you're going to be players for any of those four. Um, I don't think Marcus Stroman's going to be an option here. I, I'm not even sure they're going to be in on the Anthony DiSclefani. I think it's going to be below that market, anything below there. So I'm looking at guys like John Gray, who I've always been interested in, and we talked about him a ton as we got close to the trade deadline. If you get him out of Colorado, I do wonder what he would look like here in St. Louis. If he would accept, I don't even know what his market's going to be, but like a two-year, 25 to $30 million type of contract, that, that might be something that I'm interested for guaranteed innings where you feel pretty confident that he's going to be a guy that's out there every fifth day. I like the idea of a John Gray and then other guys that are kind of in that same ilk, but maybe to a slightly lesser degree, Tyler Anderson previously with the pirates. And then eventually with Seattle last year, Michael Pineda, Steven Matz, there are options out there that are even above the John Lester, J Hap, Wade LeBlanc market that I think the Cardinals could get in on. The question though, is what does that prevent you from doing? If you go out there and get this fifth starter, because I know we all want to, we want to get the bench bats, we want to get the fifth starter, we want to get the bullpen arms, and we want to get the shortstop. The reality is they're probably going to have to go light on one, at least one of those positions, if not multiple. And so they're going to have to lean on their internal depth somewhere. Whether that means going next year with DeYoung and Edmundo Sosa at shortstop, or going with one of their internal options as a fifth starter, or leaning on those guys at the back end of your bullpen, or going with their internal options like Nolan Gorman and Juan Yepes and Lars Newtbar as the bench bats, you're going to have to be light somewhere. And it's about where can you handle this best. 
I think for me, the place that I feel most comfortable doing that in the place where I think it could probably be the cheapest for them to do that is the bench bats. So this is where I do come back to guys like John Gray and Anderson and Pineda and Mats. And I, I think that if you can add a fifth starter for a reasonable price, it makes sense to do so. Yeah, 100%. If you can get somebody for less than $10 million, then I'm all in on it. Uh, like for me, you're, you're making your team better. Or maybe you find that option in a trade. Maybe you can move on from Paul DeYoung and don't look at your bullpen as much as you look at it. Why don't you bring in a guy for 5 or $6 million and put him into your rotation? There's options there for you, but I'm not going above that $10 million threshold because if you miss out on one of the starting pitchers, I think your team is still going to be fine. If you miss out on a bat that helps your lineup, I don't think your team is going to be fine. Here's a question for you guys. How do you feel about injury question players coming into this market? Because there's a few of them going into next year that are coming off of injury-plagued seasons. And like who? So Justin Verlander would be one, for example. Um, another would be a guy like Danny Duffy, who dealt with a lot of injuries this year, but he's a lefty arm that can swing between the rotation and the bullpen. And they're probably going to go for under-market deals relative to their talent. But there's a reason for it. It's because you have no idea what, if anything, you're going to get from them next year. So maybe money-wise, it makes a lot of sense. For this team, with what they need for their rotation next year and the guys in the bullpen, do you think that this team can go out there and make that kind of deal this offseason? I think they could because we've seen in the past the Cardinals find ways to rejuvenate guys' careers on the pitching side, especially when you have a player like Yadier Molina and his ilk. If you know the guy's 100% healthy coming into the season, I'd take a shot. Justin Verlander is going to be too expensive, so I'm just I'm counting that out because I still think he's going to be $20 million plus because of what goes behind him. But, yeah, I mean, if you bring in one of the guys like you mentioned or I know somebody else mentioned Noah Syndergaard Yeah, we've seen well. Syndergaard on the text line. Like, if I know that that guy is going to be 100% healthy. But th- you don't. That's what I'm saying. You, there's no guarantees. You're going into the offseason, and you're like, okay, maybe there's some optimism here, but it, it's impossible to know how they're going to hold up over next year. I'd take a shot at it. you take it? I'd take a shot because it's not going to be a lot. Now, I'm not paying that guy 5 or $6 million. Like, I mean, we're talking – what if I said that's the deal that you're looking at? Five like, million dollars for a Noah Syndergaard? No, I Noah's probably going to get more. He'll probably yeah. get closer to ten. But if we're talking about like uh, Justin Verlander or Danny Duffy, and it, we're talking in that five to ten million dollar range, maybe I don't know as much about Danny Duffy. I'm pulling his numbers up right now. But for me, like if it's if it's Justin Verlander, yeah, I would take a shot at that one because I know what Justin Verlander looks like at his best. But I mean. Duffy's been really good in the past when he's been healthy, but it's just a question of can he stay healthy? Yeah. And he's he's swung back and forth between the rotation and the bullpen. Tanner, where are you at on that? Do you think this team can afford to go out there and get an injured player that you're hoping that he's good to go next year, but you're not sure? I, I don't. I, I don't think you can because I think of the four guys that we are saying are solidified rotation guys, all four of them, in my opinion, have some pretty big question marks with it. And three of them are due to injury. I mean, you look at Miles Michaelis. Look, I thought he looked really good when he got back from the IL, but, I mean, it was two years of injury-prone seasons for Miles Michaelis. Dakota Hudson's coming off of Tommy John surgery. It looked like his recovery went well, but, I mean, there's still a little bit of hesitancy for me. And then you look at uh, who, Jack Flaherty. Jack Flaherty's coming off an injury-riddled, uh, injury-riddled season. And then Adam Wainwright, it's just a concern of his age. Can he really do that again at the age of 40, 41? I, I don't know. Those To me, those are such big question marks to where if I'm going to go sign a guy for a 5 to $10 million deal, I don't want a guy like a Danny Duffy that already has an injury history because we're talking about guys that 
if if those question marks that I have come true, you're talking about, again, the rotation you had this year where it was just injury-riddled. You were out four of your five starters. To me, you have to – if you're going to bring in a veteran, it has to be someone that you know can stay healthy and someone that can really – you think will benefit – be whether it be a benefactor to your ballpark or to your defense like a John Lester. I think I'm with you. I, I, I like – I would like to have one of those guys – I just don't think you can do it in this current situation. Yeah. I I don't know that this team can afford to go out there and get a guy that already has injury questions. We know, like, you could go out there and sign. Um, like, John Gray has been the model of consistency. He's out there every fifth day. And next year, he might be the guy that ends up starting five games because he gets hurt. This is what happens with pitchers. But the the risk is less with a guy like John Gray than it is going out there and getting Justin Verlander or Danny Duffy. So I think that for me, I would rather go into that market because there is less risk and this team needs something that is more of a surefire thing. I wish they could go swim in those other markets. I just don't know that they can this offseason. Randy Carricker just texted me, and he is 100% correct on this, and I can't believe I didn't think of this person. Justin Verlander, we need to circle back on this because if Justin Verlander comes to St. Louis, Kate Upton comes to St. Louis. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, let's get into the Ferrario 5, the five most impressive blues from the road trip, and I don't think Kate Upton's going to be a part of this particular list. It's next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture, the real big St. Lewis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are live at the new ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. We'll get into our NFL pick in about 15 minutes or so. But, Alex, the Blues have been damn impressive in their first three games of the season, all of which came on their first road trip of the season. And I am curious to hear what you think are the top five most impressive Blues that we've seen so far. Top five impressive players? That's what you want? Top five. I want to hear not one. Not two, okay. not three, okay. not four, one more, but five. Oh my this gosh! This did feel more like a T-bone ten, though. You can't have a T-bone ten. There's, there, there's twenty three guys on the roster, man. That's like half the roster you'd have on your list. Can we get a BK buildup? Sure, go for it. Tanner hit the open. You're listening to BK and Ferrario. It's time for the Ferrario Five, a top five list of very random things. So, Ferrario, give us your top five. Is this open? This was the wrong bed. Oh my God, Tanner! Unbelievable. There's, there's so many of them. BK keeps adding beds in. Bell, bell, puppy. T-Bone, how would you rate BK's buildup? Eh. Four and a half. Yeah. I'll take about it. About a one it like and a, a half. Three. I get like a three. All right, boys. Number five on this Ferrari 05. None of this BK buildup or T-Bone ten crap. Pavel Buchnevich. Number one on this list. I know he headbutted somebody. Number five or number one? Number five. Did I say number one? Yeah, just making sure. Well, because he be used one. his head? Yeah, I was going to say he should be number one for that headbutter that he had on Lawson Krause. Watch out now. No, he's number five on this list. Yeah, he only played one in like a third game on the road trip. Booch! But... My boy Booch. B-U-C-H. You going to keep interrupting me? Go ahead. This is my list, man. Buchnevich gets this one because in that full game against the Colorado Avalanche and in that first period against the Coyotes, not only did he score a goal, picked up an assist, but on top of it, he was the most impressive player because he was everywhere, man. I mean, he was finishing checks behind the net. He was creating offense in front of the net, going to the front of the net. Defensively, he was a liability or reliable. 
And on top of it, he was playing the penalty kill for the team, and they did not allow a power play goal in the time that he was on the ice with the team. So Pavel Buchnevich is number five on this list. I think he's going to be – I think he's going to turn into a fan favorite by the end of this season. I think he's already there in some regard. Now, you can't be out here headbutting people. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> doing that regularly throughout the season is not going to get you on the fans' good side. But he's been super impressive in the brief period that we've been able to see him thus far. And I think he deserves to be, if not at five, maybe even higher on this list. Well, and the only reason I didn't put him higher was because he only played a game and a half. And he headbutted somebody. And then he got himself kicked out of the game. Number four on this list, this might surprise some people. I put Clem Cost in here. Didn't play in the first one, got in the second one, and then stayed in the lineup. And then, of course, the Buchnevich suspension kind of helped along with that. But if Buchnevich wasn't suspended, I truly believe Costin would have stayed in and Neil would have been a healthy scratch. Costin found his game. Joey told the story on, I believe it was the game against the Coyotes in the broadcast, that basically Costin went to Berube and the coaching staff and told them, like, hey, I was terrible in the training camp. Please don't take that as a judgment for me. I promise you I will be better. And that was part of the reason that helped them decide that Costin should be on this team because he knew that he could be better. And he proved that in game number one against Coyotes. He was hitting everything. He was the identity of that fourth line with Jake Neighbors and Tyler Bozak. And then, look, he's got a scary good shot that I think people underestimate. This was the reason he was a first-round pick was because people felt Clem Costin could be a goal scorer. I don't think he's ever going to get to a 25-goal plateau. Maybe there's an opportunity for him, but Clem Costin impressed me. And for at least right now, Clem Costin does not deserve to come out of this lineup. Not only that, but today at Blues Morning Skate, guess where he's skating, Alex? Terror, no. Uh, with Shannon Kyra? With O'Reilly and Perron. Really? Clem Costin, according to Luke Korak, is on the top line with O'Reilly and Perron in today's morning skate. Kairou is on the second line with Shin and James. The real deal, Neil. Barbashev is with Thomas and Tarasenko, and then the fourth line is Neighbors, Bozak, and Kyle Clifford on that line. I, I, I really like that. Now, what I wouldn't be surprised to happen is if Barbashev and Costin are flipped. Costin's got a good relationship with Vladimir Tarasenko. Barbashev's played with O'Reilly and Perron, but that just goes to show you the faith that Craig Bruby has put into Clem Costin. They like his skill set so far, so he was number four on this list. By the way, just to follow up with this, the defensive pairings are interesting to me as well. We mentioned this a little bit yesterday. Jake Wallman is skating today with Colton Pareko. So that means Scandella skating with Portuzo. Portuzo. Yeah, so he's part of the third pairing, and they've got Krug with Falk today. I, I, I liked the way that that looked with Wallman and Pareko. I think they're hoping Jake Wallman can be what they hoped Vince Dunn was going to be. Because remember, Doug Armstrong saying Vince Dunn should be a top four defenseman for us. And just, well, you made the comparison yesterday, too. Maybe Jake Wallman could be not the exact same, but similar to what you had with Joel Edmondson. And he could be the, the pairing with Pareko. Yeah, you're not going to get the physical presence of it, but you're going to get kind of that... It's kind of the polar opposites because Colton Pareko doesn't need to be the guy that jumps up into the rush, although he likes to. Jake Wallman can do that, and Pareko could play that shutdown defenseman role. Sorry, didn't mean to completely no, no, take over conversation. the Ferrario five. So, so far, we're at five is Buchnevich, four is Costin, number three. Justin Falk. Justin Falk, two goals in three games, but on top of it, he's played the second most ice time among the defensemen in total of those three games. I mean, he's been in every situation. I love Justin Falk on that second power play unit. Frankly, I would not I would love to see them give him a shot at the number one unit because Justin Falk, he's got a way of quarterbacking that power play. Not that Tory Krug doesn't, but Justin Falk just has that, that 
presence around him on the ice that he just knows where he's going with the puck at all times. I, I truly think Justin Falk could be a 15-goal scorer for you this season, but on top of it, I think he's back to the form that he was last year of comfortability in his own zone, but on top of it, playing a very heavy style of hockey in his own zone. He looks so comfortable. He does. I, I think that's the biggest difference for me, and we saw this last year from him. Year one, I think we can now scratch it up to. He just never was completely in his elements. And now we're starting to see, okay, I know my role. I know what they need out of me. I know where I'm going to be and kind of where the where my teammates will be. He looks like a completely different player over the last really 12 months or so compared to what we saw in year one. I've been impressed by Justin Falk once again so far. Number two on this list, boys, Jordan Cairo. Number 25 for this team with seven points in three games. I, I think I think that game against the Coyotes was his coming out party, kind of like Tyler O'Neill of, hey, I'm ready to be an everyday top six forward, and he's just built off of that. I wouldn't be surprised if Jordan Cairo has more assists than goals this season. For how quick he is on the ice, and if that line stays together with him, Kyra, him Shannon Buchnevich, that's a dangerous trio who anybody at any time can shoot the puck. And what I like about Jordan Cairo in those three games is what we saw against Arizona, where he came in on that breakaway, and then he got the puck over for the one-time goal. I forgot who scored it, but... Jordan Cairo always has that the goaltender's mindset of, oh, this guy's going to shoot on me, so I got to be ready for it. And he has elite passing skills as well. So if Cairo can do both of those, uh, this is going to be a guy who I think is going to be, I don't know if he gets there, but he's going to be trending towards an all-star game. Buchinru or Bushinru? Bushinru. Bushinru? Actually, yeah, because you got to get the N, the Shen in there. So Bushenru is really good. I like it. Oh, man. Did BK and Ferrari just come up with a great nickname? The Bushenru no. line. The Bushenru no. line. That's almost <laughs> no. as good as... Tanner said no. That's almost as good as Schwarzschenko. I'll text Chris Kerber that right now. Yeah, let him know. And tell him that I said that. Oh, yeah. The guy that he enjoyed having on Blue's Brain postgame. Yeah, I don't think that's a true statement I would at save all. your no. text, Ferrario. <laughs> Number one. Not if I'm throwing him under the bus. Number one on this list is pretty obvious. For me, it's Jordan Bennington. Bennington played like a Vezina winner this season in those three games. I get it. It's three games, however you want to go with this, but get out of here with the trash if he's not a top 10 goaltender in the National Hockey League. He's better than six of those guys that were on the list from the Athletic that I went off on a couple of weeks ago. He's played in three games against some pretty high-powered offenses. I don't care that they were missing some guys. Jordan Bennington made the saves when he needed to, stood on his head multiple times, and on top of it, remember what Greg Wyshynski said when he was on with us, that this goaltender in the last three years has been one of the best goaltenders in the league when it's a one-goal game, up or down. He proved that in all of those games, Colorado, Arizona, and Vegas of not forcing overtime. So Bennington's number one. Your Ferrario five for today, the five most impressive blues on the road trip. Number one, Jordan Bennington. Number two, Jordan Cairo. Number three, Justin Falk. Number four, Clem Costin. And number five, our guy Booch. The lines for today at Morning Skate, according to Lou Korak, it's Costin with O'Reilly and Perron. Again, a reminder that the Blues are expected to be without Buchnevich and Brandon Saad tomorrow night in the home opener. So Costin getting the opportunity on that top line. It's Kairou with Shin, as expected, and James Neal is on that line on the right wing today at Morning Skate. It's Barbashev, Thomas, and Tarasenko on your third line, as it has been. And then the fourth line, at least this morning, is Neighbors, Bozak, and Kyle Clifford in the lineup today. Wallman is with Pareko on the top defensive pair. 
Baron, Krug, and Falk, and then Scandella bumping down to the third defensive pairing with Robert Bortuzzo. In 15 minutes, we'll get to some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But coming up next, it's time for our football pick There are a bunch of bad games to pick this weekend. I don't feel a whole lot of confidence about any of them, but we'll try to find some that work for us next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. Time for our football pick'em oh, of the week. I thought this was the Ferrario Five segment. Look, they both say hard-hitting hip hop, and I just mixed them up. <laughs> With Alex Ferrario, and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Things didn't go well for me last week. You may be surprised to hear <laughs> surprise, that. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> uh, I was zero and three. Alex was one and one. Oh, I was Monday two and night. one, you jerk. He finished going two and one because he <laughs> took the Titans plus five and a half. They won straight up. Yeah, you're damn right they did. Tanner, however, what a stud. Three what? and oh last okay. week on his picks. Oh, easy. Five. Ferrario's still in the lead on the show. So Tanner gets to pick yeah. his overall. I don't think so. He gets to pick his spot for this week's draft. He picks number one. Alex got to go second. He picks second. And I will be third and fourth. Tanner. We have our nine games selected. What are you taking with the number one overall pick for this week's weekly pick We probably should have made you pick second because your picks are like a number two. Oh, my God. That was fantastic. Thank you. That Thank was you. fantastic. Make a pick, man. Make a pick. Oh, my God. That was so good. With the, uh, with the oh. first pick. You know, <laughs> Illinois, Illinois is going to be a little fired up after Brett Bielema's comments. Oh. But, you know. Illinois kind of they're fired up like a little puppy, like a little a little puppy playing with you. He'll bite. He's not going to draw blood. So give me Brett Penn Bielma's, State. Give Brett me that is a man who's never had a puppy. <laughs> he doesn't know how sharp <laughs> puppy teeth are. Maybe you're just you not guys tough. Are fantastic. Uh, give me Penn State minus 23. They're going to blow Illinois out of the water. I'll no, take them at see, minus 23. Uh, didn't you see Brett Bielma? He's, he's taking back his comments. He's saying that he didn't mean them that way. So what? Illinois is going to make a run in this game. Oh, like Brett. Bielema really came out and said, yeah, you guys didn't see the full context. Brett, I watched the full two-minute video. You literally said, we have over the last three years recruited a lot of players that can't get into the two deep right now. A little late, Brett. Like, No, there was no context missing. You trashed the guys that are on your roster. All right, boys, number two pick for uh, Ferrario, who's number one in our BK and Ferrario pick. I don't think you are, by the yeah, way. Overall, I've whooped up on you guys. No, I'm taking, I don't think so. Yeah, just just deal with it, T-Bone. You've won twice. Easy. I just know I'm not first. BK knows he's last. I'm taking the Titans plus four and a half. That seems way too big of a number for the Kansas City uh, can't stop anybody's offense Chiefs. I agree. Whereas the Tennessee Titans just had a – Derrick Henry run through defenses, and I think he's going to do that again. I think Tannehill's going to have himself a big game. Uh, so this is in Tennessee. Titans plus four and a half. I like that. If I were to bet anything in that game, I would take the over. Oh, 100%. I, I think this one's going to be like 38 to 35, um, 41, 38, something like that. Yeah. I don't expect a whole lot of defense. If there is any, I think it's going to be turnovers because the Chiefs can't tur- stop turning the football over. I like the Titans plus the four and a half in that game. I would have taken them in the next pick if you hadn't. Um, My picks, I'm going with two college games. I like Wisconsin minus the three and a half points on the road at Purdue. 
Really? I do. Interesting, because I like That's, Purdue. I was going to say, I kind of like Purdue. I like Wisconsin in that matchup. I think Purdue is a little bit overrated currently. They are top 25. Wisconsin is not. But I think Wisconsin is the better team going into that one. So I'll take the Badgers minus the three and a half going into Purdue. And I'm going to take one more uh, oh, please take Alabama game. minus 25. I am not. I'm going to take the other side of that one. I'm going to oh. take Tennessee plus the 25 points. I do not think they win outright. I also do not think they lose by 25. I think that offense is good enough for them to be able to put up some points. I think Tennessee covers a 25-point spread on the road in Tuscaloosa. So the question now is, do I want to go all NFL picks? Because I did all NFL picks last week, and i got to be honest with you guys, it stressed me out a little bit. But, man, Oregon and UCLA, I'm basically just picking the straight-up team in this one. Um, I think I'm going to stay away from college football. So I'm going to go Colts and 49ers. I think I'm going to take San Francisco minus four. Home game. The Colts, I read this the other day, the Colts have not lost the last two games that they played against them, I think, against San Francisco. So that part of me was like, oh, boy, but... They look like they're going to have Jimmy G back. I think they have Eli Mitchell playing in this one, which means they got their weapons on the the running back side, healthy on the defensive side. I think the the, uh, the 49ers can cover that minus four, so I'm taking San Francisco. Tanner, who you got next, buddy? I'm going to stick with college football. I really like Oregon at UCLA. This does feel like that game that could be that statement one for Chip Kelly, but I don't know. They haven't really performed well. The Pac-12 is just kind of a crapshoot right now. I kind of like Oregon. They've beaten Ohio State on the road this year. I think they can go into UCLA and win that one. So I'm going to take them plus one, which is basically a pick. This feels like a T-bone three and, or 0 and 3 week. It's funny because I was actually going to take the other side on that one. I, I like UCLA minus the one point at home against Oregon. I think neither of those teams are great. I think we were thrown off of the sense of Oregon because they won that game against Ohio State. And since then, they really have not per- performed up to that level again. Um, but... Neither here nor there. The next game that I am going to take, man, all of these are tough ones. I like the Panthers minus the three, but I hate that it's on the road in New York. If that was at home, I think I would love them. East Coast, East Coast team. That's what you're worried about. Yeah, I'm worried about the travel yeah, going up the East Coast. That, that same time change well, is really messed up. I don't up. appreciate the mafia, maybe because it turned true for the Chargers last week. Yeah, I'm sure that's I'm why. I'm sure that's what will happen. I'm going to go with them, though, because I don't have a good feel for either of the other two games. I could see the Bengals winning outright. I could see them losing that game by 20. I could see the Eagles winning outright. I could see them losing by 20 on the road. I don't think the Panthers get blown out. I don't see any scenario where that takes place. So I'm going to take the Panthers minus the three on the road at the Giants. See, with that mindset, I'm going Raiders minus three because I don't see the Raiders getting blown out by Philadelphia. If the Raiders lose, I feel like it's going to be either in overtime or it's going to be by a field goal. And in that case, I think I push no matter what. So I feel pretty comfortable and confident with the Raiders at home minus three against an Eagles team that just has not been good. Guys, I feel like we did this wrong. How did I end up with two last picks in each uh, in a round? No, dude, you complain about this every time. You I, take I, the first look, pick, that's your it's benefit. It's amazing I go 3-0 and I get screwed in the draft order. You that's don't all get I'm going to say. We have that's had this rule the same freaking time so. every week. I don't think so. I would remember that. snake in the round three. Come on. What? Just pick so you could go 0-3, man, and be second to There's Ferrario. One game left. I'm going to take the Bengals plus 6.5 oh, at there the Ravens. Is, that's I, that's, how, that's like, how he goes 0-3. I like the Ravens in this game, but I think it's going to be close, and I think Cincinnati can keep it within 6.5. That's a really high line for two good teams in the NFL, so 
I'm going to take the Bengals plus six and a half at Baltimore. All right, so here's what we've got going into the weekend. If you are rooting for Tanner, what you want is Penn State minus 23 points against Illinois. Trust My me, God. they'll cover. That one, that one I think will cover. <laughs> uh, San Francisco, a four-point favorite against the Indianapolis Colts. No, that's Alex. Sorry. Oregon plus one against UCLA. And then the Bengals plus six and a half. So they've got to lose by less than seven. Alex has the Titans plus four and a half against Kansas City. He's got San Francisco minus the four. And he has the Raiders minus three points. If you're rooting against me, which you don't want to happen, because I'm assuming you probably will. Wisconsin minus three and a half. I have uh, the Tennessee Volunteers plus 25. And then my last third pick was the Panthers minus the three points against the New York Giants. By the Alex, way, we need punishments for Tanner and BK. And we'll get those for you coming up. Maybe. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers coming up next. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Time for some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. So I just saw this. Somebody posted uh, a picture of a conversation they were having on First Take, which is always a dangerous proposition. And it's Stephen A. Smith and Tim Tebow yelling at one another about would you rather have Patrick Mahomes or Derrick Henry for the rest of this season? Is this where we're at, Alex? Is this where we're at? I mean, I don't know where you're coming off of with this, but... I would rather have Derrick Henry for the rest of the season. What? I would rather have Derrick Henry for the rest of the season. Am I wrong? Yeah. We are not even talking about Patrick Mahomes being the best quarterback this season in the NFL. And his offensive line has been better. And he still has two of the best weapons in the game. Derrick Henry is already being talked about as an MVP. That's I would a valid rather, point. I would rather have Derrick Henry on my team right now than Patrick Mahomes. Tanner, where do you come out on this? I think it depends on who I have as like my quarterback. If I'm like saying I'm like the Cleveland Browns, then I'd probably say Patrick Mahomes. But if it's well, just yeah. in the general sense right now, I think I would, I would probably say Derrick Henry. The dude's a beast. He can control the game, running the ball. And Patrick Mahomes, I'll be honest. I mean, he's played good this year, but he hasn't been what he was in years past so far because, like he said, he's got the offensive line fixed and he doesn't have all, he has the offensive weapons. Look, so we're not put, talking about him. You put Derrick Henry on the Browns team last night. Dearness Johnson had 150 rushing yards. Derrick Henry's going to have 450. Patrick Mahomes leads the league in touchdown passes this year. That's fun. that's a team stat. Yeah. That's, a, that, that's probably because of Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. Yeah, Derrick Henry leads the league in rushing touchdowns and rushing yards this year. That's a man stat. That's a man sport. <laughs> Derrick Henry is incredible, and I'm not saying this to demean what he has done so far this well, year. you kind of sound like you are. But he's a running back, man. Oh, yeah. BK hates running backs. That's what why is, Frank Gore's not a Hall of Famer. Any of the top Stoltz. five quarterbacks I will take over Derrick Henry. Like, just if I if – I, if you tell me right now I can have either a top five quarterback or Derrick Henry, I'm taking the quarterback. Now, I do think there's an interesting conversation. But that to be depends had. on the team. Like, yeah, I don't need like a top. Uh, Derrick Henry's not going to make the Jacksonville Jaguars any better. But you put Derrick Henry on the Chiefs team right now, they're going to make a pretty darn better. Am I taking Mahomes off of it? Yeah. You, no. 
If you put Mah- if you put Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill on the Kansas City Chiefs right now and take Mahomes off, you're telling me they wouldn't be better than what they are? No. I think they would. No chance. They're significantly worse. The only reason why they have any chance of being any good is because they have the best quarterback in the league. And he's definitely made some boneheaded mistakes this year. His interceptions are way too high. There's no doubt about that. But the interceptions have also been a little higher because Tyree Kill has three drops that have led to interceptions this year. Um, so, I I mean, if you're telling me I could have a top five quarterback or Derrick Henry, I, God bless him, but I'm taking the quarterback. I do think that there is going to be an interesting conversation to be had, though, about after that. If you tell me Derrick Henry versus trying to think of who the the top of that next tier would be, but quarterbacks. Yeah. Derek Carr, Matt Stafford, Joe Burrow, that list. And we're just talking about for the rest of this year. I could see why you would take Derrick Henry over those guys, because he does give you an identity offensively, but. Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, Lamar Jackson. I- I'm taking all of those guys over Derrick Henry right now. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Hey, Alex, which Central Division teams scare you the most for the Blues right now? Um, Minnesota scares me more than Colorado scares me right now. Uh, I don't know if people have watched any of Minnesota's games their forward group feels an awful lot like how St. Louis does, where it's wave after wave after wave, and they play they play an identical system to the St. Louis Blues. Heavy, goes to the front of the net, not afraid to throw the body around. They've got some speed. they got Kirill the Thrill Kaprizov, who's been really good this year. Um, Minnesota scares me more than Colorado scares me right now because of the depth that they have at forward and defense. But right after Minnesota, it would still be Colorado because Colorado always seems to scare me. But for some reason, the Coyotes still make me nervous every time we play against them. They're a terrible team, but they still stress me out. Like, they came back, it was 6-4 to four in that game, and I thought the Blues were going to lose, and I was really frustrated for a while. So those would be the three teams that, that make me nervous, but Minnesota's number one. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 618. Guys, do you trust that Vladdy's game against Las Vegas is going to be sustainable? I have my doubts as to whether or not he can continue to play that way. I think it's fair to question it. I mean, the first two games, he didn't look good. We asked Chris Kerber and JR and Joey about how he was performing, and and everybody seemed to be on the same page. It's not good enough just yet. And they expected it to get better, and it did. But is that going to be consistent? I'd say probably not, because so far we've seen three games out of the Blues, and he's been really good in one of them and not so great in the other two. I do think this weekend's going to be a good test for him. So I, I would say it's hard for me to trust that it's going to be at that level, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be good. Yeah, um, I don't think it's sustainable because, frankly, that style of hockey is not sustainable over an 82-game schedule. So, like, what you saw from him of throwing his body around and, and forechecking hard, like, that's going to drop off every once in a while. It's going to be sporadic. Now, the six, seven shots on goal, uh, that could be sustainable if Vladdy just says, blanket, I'm going to shoot the puck every time it's on my stick. But, yeah, I mean, look, there were some factors that went into that. It was on TNT, which the players know. It's in Vegas, which is a big-time atmosphere. And then on top of it, you also have um, the, the the fact that there are 15 scouts in the building from there. But, look, I, I think Vladdy's going to be close to that performance but I think it's going to be a little inconsistent for him. I'm Tanner. with you. I, I think I think it's fair to question if he's going to be able to con- continue that continuously. 
but I, I do think that he's going to be something, probably like what you just said, Alex, maybe a little bit less than that. Because I, I think that was the return of Vladimir Tarasenko, and I think he's going to play like that for most of the season now moving forward, especially knowing that he's trying to get himself out of St. Louis. And for him to do that, he's going to have to play like that every night. I think he's going to be something close to that. I don't think he'll be exactly what we saw. I think he'll be pretty close to that. Final question here for questions and answers. In about ten or five minutes or so, we'll talk about the Cardinals affording three players making big-time money from the 3-1-4. Alex, how concerned are you about the Blues giving up these late third-period goals right now? Not concerned when you look at the situations that they are. I mean, Colorado Avalanche game, you had a penalty taken. That was a bad penalty. It was a turnover on a power play that results in 4-on-4. They pull the goaltender. They score at 5-on-4. Then they pull the goaltender again when it's 6-on-5, and they score. I'd be concerned a little bit by the fact of, like, you take your foot off of the gas. Like Craig Bruby has said, stop playing to the score. Meaning if you're up by five, you need to play like you're a tied hockey game. Um, But I'm not concerned about it because of what we saw against the Vegas Golden Knights. It was a close game. You went on top by a goal, and then you shut it down the rest of the way. So I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Plus, the start of the seasons are always getting used to, and it's it's a little bit more loose than what it is once you enter January, February, and March. We'll see if that trend continues tomorrow night. I don't expect it to. Blues versus uh, Kings tomorrow at 7. It's the home opener for the Blues. You'll hear pregame coverage with Alex Ferrario tomorrow night beginning at 6 o'clock. It's 11.59. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. In about 15 minutes or so, we'll preview tomorrow night's game with Joey Vitale, the Blues analyst for 101 ESPN. But coming up next, can the Cardinals really afford to have three players on the infield making at least $25 million per year. There's nobody in baseball that does it right now. Can the Cardinals be the first next year? Talk about it next on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We are live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. In about 10 minutes or so, we'll catch up with Joey Vitale, Blues Analyst for 101 ESPN. Yesterday, I was listening to the Fast Lane, and they had a conversation, Alex, that we had about two weeks ago about the the opportunity for the Cardinals to add another $25 million player. And if you're looking around the league, it's pretty rare. There's three teams that did this last year, none of which were all on the infield. And that's what we're asking of the Cardinals if they were to go out there and add one of these big-time shortstops. So here's Anthony Stalter's reaction when he heard BT mention that stat. When you phrase it the way you did with the the Dodgers are the only team with three or more players making $25 million per year, the Cardinals would be in rarefied air. I'm not saying they shouldn't spend and get Corey Seager, plug him into this this lineup, but if you're looking at it from the Cardinals' perspective, this is a team that is usually operated on, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll sign Goldschmidt, they acquired Nolan Arenado's contract, but I, I don't see them doing it for a third player. I just don't. I think I'm at the place where, Alex, I get why this would be rare. I understand why most teams don't do it and why it's so difficult to be able to accomplish. I also think if ever there was a time to do it for the Cardinals, it's right now. 
Because if you look at the way that their team is constructed, you've got everything set. Your outfield is young, it is cheap, it is cost-controlled. You know exactly what it's going to cost to have Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt for the next three years. Your pitching, if you do promote from within the way we've been talking about, you've got a lot of guys that have a bunch of runway before they start getting paid. Really, the only big-time contracts that could be coming up soon are Jack Flaherty, two years from now, and Tyler O'Neill, I think it's three years from now, and we'll see what happens with him over the next couple of years. But even if he does go out for all three years, by the end of that deal, Paul Goldschmidt's contract comes off of the books. This is the time when it would make sense. And I know it's super rare, but man, you look at catcher as well. They want to promote from within there. You look at second base. They've got options there internally. If you go out there and get this guy, the thing we have to acknowledge as Cardinals fans is this is the last piece. This is the one that should put them over the top, and they're probably not going to be going out there and in the next couple of years looking for other big-time pieces. Now it becomes accent pieces. I do think it would make some sense, even though I acknowledge what Stalter said, where, yeah, you're going to be in rarefied air, and it does change some of the flexibility you have over the next couple of seasons. It does, and you're right. You have money coming off of the books with Paul Goldschmidt in two years, and then after this year, you would imagine Yachty and Wainos, and what is that combined, like $21 million, something like that? So you basically are making up what you're going to pay a guy this offseason with Yachty and Wainos retirement. But my only hesitancy with this, and look, I've been the biggest component of you have to go get one of these bats, but my only hesitancy about it is you're going to go get one of those big bats for a shortstop, right? Like if you're going to spend the money, you're going to get a shortstop. That would be, in the Cardinals' mind, blocking the way for their young player, Nolan Gorman, because they view Nolan Gorman as a second baseman, right? And if Nolan Gorman's a second baseman and then if they view Tommy Edmond as an everyday player – Maybe their identity is, well, let's shift Tommy Edmond to shortstop, and he and Edmundo Sosa can play there, so we have a position for Nolan Gorman. Or I, I, I think what it probably does is it pigeonholes Nolan Gorman more as a DH, and maybe you move him to second but, if Edmund doesn't live up to expectations. But do they feel like that's the best opportunity for growth of Nolan Gorman? That's why I would be concerned, because the quote-unquote cardinal way, right, is defense first. And if you want to get a player acclimated, you don't want him to just be solely a DH and then plug him in on D at second base and struggle there. And this is just me maybe thinking too much. Maybe I'm thinking way too no, much I, into I think this. these are all things that you have to consider. But to your point on their defense first, I think that's why you would consider using Nolan Gorman as your designated hitter next year because he's played second base for basically one year, one year of yeah. his professional life. And Tommy Edmond is really good defensively at second base. And Paul Goldschmidt is a gold glover at first. And Nolan Arenado is a gold glover at third. And if you go out there and acquire one of these shortstops, other than Corey Seager, who is about average as a defensive shortstop, all of the other ones are really good defensively that you could potentially acquire. So you're actually making yourself a better version of yourself defensively by going out there and acquiring one of these shortstops most likely. So I actually think it plays into some of their identity as opposed to maybe going with Edmund at second or potentially going with Gorman there and then moving Edmund at shortstop. And then you might get worse defensively at two different positions. Yeah, I... I I just don't think it matters about, oh, well, they don't want to have that much money tied up into three positions because you want your best chance to win. And the reason you're in this predicament is because you have three cheap outfielders that are performing at a high level. You have your second baseman who is cheap, cost-controlled, performing at a high level. And your pitching staff is fairly pretty cheap moving forward. 
So it gives you the luxury of spending that money, and your bench would be considered cheap because if you're going to promote Nolan Gorman, Juan Yepes, and then Lars Nupar, maybe you sign somebody for $5 million, everything is cheap. It's not like you're paying you know, $20 million in the outfield and then 20 at first and then 20 at third and then 30 for a pitcher. You're pretty cheap elsewhere, so that's why it, it, it puts me in the position to say you, you have to go out and get this guy regardless if you're spending money. The other thing too, BK, is you gotta you gotta transition into a new leadership core. You gotta trans transition into a new core after the season if Yadi and Wayno are retiring. And I know Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado would be those guys, but Paul Goldschmidt's only here for two more years, and then you don't know there. So that's why bringing somebody else in, he's going to be that next core piece for you. Yeah, th- that there's definitely some importance to that. And when you look at this, like. I do think we need to look at it as more than just 2022 because the chances are you're going to get multiple years on this contract, even for Trevor story, who there's been some talk about, Hey, maybe he's a guy that ends up getting a one year pillow deal. I don't know how likely that is. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. I think it's more likely he gets a four or five year contract and he gets 20 ish million dollars per season on that deal. Even if he does have to settle a little less than what he was expecting going into the year. So this year you can make it work, and we've talked about how you do. You go big on the shortstop. You probably end up adding a little bit, some tertiary pieces to the bullpen and maybe a fifth starter, and you probably go young with all of your bench bats slash DH. It's probably the way you make it work. 2023, like you said, you've got Wayno's money coming off of the books. You've got Yachty's money coming off of the books. You do have some raises that will be built in there with guys like Flaherty and Bader and Reyes, uh, so you do have to take that into account as well. But the money works pretty well in 2023. And then in 2024, once again, you have Miles Michaelis coming off of the books. At that point, if you haven't already, you would have Paul DeYoung's money coming off of the books. So, and now, by 2024, the following year, guess whose money comes off of the books? It's Paul Goldschmidt. So, it, it actually is a little easier to handle than I think some would lead you to believe because of the way that the Cardinals' contracts are currently constructed They actually are, of all of the teams that are out there right now that already are pretty good, they're maybe the best constructed team to take on one of these types of deals because every year there's one more big money deal that falls off of the books. And maybe this does mean you can't re-sign Jack Flaherty. That may be a reality of it, and that's something the Cardinals need to be talking about. Or maybe you have to choose, hey, if the trajectory continues and Flaherty's the number one starter and Tyler O'Neill's a legit MVP candidate in left field, we might have to choose between one of those guys if we add a shortstop. That's one of them good problems. But isn't that, isn't that why you acquired Matthew Levitor? Didn't you acquire Matthew Levitor to continue to strengthen your pitching depth so that if it did, not that you acquired Levitor so that if you lost Flaherty, you had somebody to take over. That's not why I'm going after this, but um, your pitching has always been talked about as one of the best in development in Major League Baseball. You acquired a guy who was already a top prospect in baseball as a pitcher, and you put him into your system, so if Jack Flaherty walks, you have somebody to take over the reins and continue that development and that growth. So if that's the only holdup for me, and T-Bone, I don't know your thoughts on this, if that's your only holdup for me, of, well, I don't want to get a shortstop because I want to make sure I get Jack Flaherty under contract. That just doesn't make any sense to me because I'll figure that out afterwards. 
Yeah, I, I think it just depends on how confident you think that Matthew Libertor is going to be that guy. Because if, if you truly project him as that guy, then you better start seeing some signs of him proving towards being an ace, not at AAA, at the major league ba- at the major league level. Because we haven't seen him in the MLB yet. So that's where it gets difficult to kind of project that out. And then the other thing for me, too, is if you're going to go and I understand what you're saying, BK, where you've got what, three years where some of these contracts start to kind of trickle off of the books and Goldie and Arenado. Mm-hmm. I think you have to look at it, too, and you have to say how long till Gorman and Carlson, our two biggest prospects that we've been raving over the last couple of years, hit their ceiling offensively because they're going to be the crucial part of this winning window because three guys in Corey Seager, Paul Goldschmidt, and Nolan Arenado, yeah, that's going to help you be a winner, but it's going to come down to what Dylan Carlson and Nolan Gorman are able to provide for you offensively. Same with Matthew Libertor on the pitching side. And honestly, I'll throw whether you want to throw in Oviedo, Woodford, or Thompson into that category on pitching as well because they seem to like all three of those guys. So one of those three have to be able to become a big contributor for your rotation moving forward as well. But I think that I'm kind of on the side of BK where you can kind of make this work out. And same with you, Alex, where you can make this work out this year and then figure it out from there. Because I, I think if you really do project Libertor as that guy, then it makes that sting of possibly losing Jack Flaherty a little bit less. And let's be honest, I don't know if I want to give Jack Flaherty the money that he's going to command. True. If he does end up being a number one starter in the like of Garrett Cole and he gets a 10-year contract worth $250 million or more, I don't know that I'm interested in signing yeah. that if I'm the Cardinals. Sure the Rankies are the Yankees are regretting that right now. I, just, I, I don't want a 10-year deal for any pitcher, much less a guy that's going to get $250 million or more. So I, I, if this ends up preventing them from making that potential mistake, I actually think that it might be a benefit of a deal like this later on down the road. And you asked the question, Tanner, um, when you're looking at some of the young guys, how long does it take them to develop into what their full capabilities are going to be? I I think it helps you on that front as well. If you go sign a Trevor story or Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, because now you're not asking as much out of Dylan Carlson or Nolan Gorman next year. Now, instead of being in the top four of your order, they're in the bottom half of your order consistently next season. Like if this ends up being the case, if they go get one of these shortstops, Carlson's probably going to bat fifth or sixth for you next year. That's a good thing. That's not a sign that he has failed. It's a sign that the Cardinals have gone out there and got better players that can push him down in the order until he's ready to be a legit top-of-the-order type of a bat. So I, I think from all fronts, it makes a lot of sense. The timing has never been better. They did this on purpose where they constructed their uh, payroll in a way where they could have the flexibility this offseason. Now they just got to go out there and do it. They've shown us the urgency in firing Mike Schiltz. Now they've got to show that same urgency once we get into the offseason. Coming up in 15 minutes, I mentioned the Trevor Story potentially settling for a one-year deal. That's something that was talked about today on MLB.com. I'll give you the details in about 15 minutes. But coming up next, Blues analyst for 101 ESPN, Joey Vitale is going to join the show to preview what tomorrow night's lines could look like without Buchnevich and Brandon Saad. Joey Vitale next on 101 ESPN. We're talking blues hockey. It's the Joey Vitale Report on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by The Electrical Connection. When you need quality electrical work for your home or business, visit electricalconnection.org. Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are broadcasting live from the new ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center, and we are always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend Joey Vitale here on BK. Joey, Ferrari. Joey, Joey. <sighs> 
Come on, Tanner. Where were you, man? Joey, how you Sorry. doing, buddy? I got caught off guard. Thanks. Thanks, boys. I'm doing good. How you guys doing today? Doing fantastic. Joey, I apologize for Tanner. He wasn't ready for it. That's okay. That's okay. It's all good. It's all good, Tanner. Don't worry about it, buddy. <laughs> hey, Joey, have you ever been headbutted in a hockey game? <laughs> oh, headbutted in a hockey game. No, I'm trying to think what the closest thing I've done or Ah, let me think about this for a minute. That's, that's like a good question. No, I don't think so. I don't think anything even close to that, actually. Sorry. Can't help if, you. It, if it's not a headbutt, Joe, have you ever wanted to headbutt? And how did you hold yourself back? Uh, I mean, I held my, myself back pretty pretty easily because this head's a fragile thing. I don't know how <laughs> someone headbutts someone. I mean, there was have that you play seen Joey's hair? It's I, wonderful. I, I, Joey's got a sick flow. <laughs> That's a that's a great point, and, and you know I got I got a face for radio, so I got to protect all that stuff. <laughs> but you know, I, and I, I think about the, the greatest headbutt of all time. You guys remember that when, when France was playing Italy, of course, yep. in the World Cup. Remember that was the Danes of Dan, where the guy two Z's uh-huh. Z square, whatever the hell his name was. Uh, the captain for France absolutely headbutts the guy from Italy, and he gets ejected. And then, of course, Italy, uh, not a big deal, wins the World <laughs> Cup that year, and uh, the rest is history. But that was the most vicious. <laughs> the most vicious headbutt I've ever seen. I thought Butch Neighbors was okay. I mean, you know what? Listen, if it happened 15 years ago, no one would say anything about it. But unfortunately, too many cameras are on you nowadays. He knew, he knew what he did. He knew what was wrong. The coaches knew it. Armstrong knew it. Um, I'm actually pretty I'm actually pretty impressed he only got two games. I was thinking more of three, possibly four, since he was a re- repeat defender. Keep in mind, he got that cross-checking uh, one-game suspension last year during that Washington uh, kind of fiasco uh, in New York with the Tom Wilson being in the middle of all that. So the fact that he was a repeat defender and uh, he only got two games, to me, guys, is, is pretty positive. And you know what I liked about it, Joey? Look, you never like somebody headbutting another. But, I mean, Pavel Buchnevich already impressed in that first game against the Avalanche. I thought he and his line were the most noticeable line on the ice. But when you get a guy who gets pinned against the corner like that and he doesn't just back away, like he steps up to the plate, and again, it's headbutting and you don't want to get suspended – but I really like that, and I, I, Craig Berube was asked a couple of days ago, does that kind of create some space for him on the ice? And Berube just kind of chuckled, and he's like, yeah, I guess, because if you see a guy headbutt somebody, you really don't want to mess with them, especially if they're a guy who likes to go to the front of the net. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, again, anyone that headbutts, anyone that head, is known to be a headbutter, I, I'm staying away from That's a That's a dangerous thing. I mean, a big, big eight-pound head coming flying at you. You know, it, it actually goes completely against uh, it goes completely against human nature and what we're supposed to do with our head. You ever, you ever, you ever think about it? Like Halloween's around the corner. Whenever you get spooked, what's your first reaction? You kind of put your hands up in front of your head, right? You always put your hands up in front of your face. Or um, if, if someone scares you or if something's coming, what do, what do you always do instinctually? Our bodies are triggered to close our eyes. Why? Because we're meant to protect vital organs. Um, obviously, we got the rib cage for the midsection. But then, as far as your eyes and your nose and your brain, you put your hands up, you close your eyes because you obviously have to protect your eyes. So, uh, so from the beginning of the time, we've always been known to instinctually protect those things. And if you look at the eyeballs, it's actually pretty amazing the way the way we are we are crafted. The, the orbital bones are around the eyeballs, and the eyeballs actually sit back. They sit back, and, and that's for a reason, because if you ever get hit in the eye, it's going to hit your orbital bone before it hits your eyeball. So, you know, little things like that. But, of course, Butch Davis doesn't care about anything like that because he just goes right after <laughs> the guy with your head. So I don't get it. 
I think this is why God made my nose as large as it is, was to protect my eyeballs. It's all coming together now. Now I'm starting to no, understand. No, no, he did it. He did it because he wanted a good, a good sense of smell because it's really Fortunately important. Fortunately, lost that in COVID. Then, then he took it away, Joe, with COVID. <laughs> no, 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 no. He did it for a reason, BK. I'm telling you, he didn't put your nose on your ears and your ears where your nose is because think about it. When we used to eat, when we used to eat, we would eat, and you need your nose right by your mouth because that's how you told you, you could tell back in the day if food was good or not because you'd smell it before you eat it. That's why your nose is located right by your mouth. Nowadays, you know, you got the expiration dates, and you you know, but 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 essentially, when, when your wife or your your husband says, "Hey, honey, is it still good?" You can see the expiration date, but at the end of the day, if it smells good, it's probably good. If it smells bad, it's probably bad. So that's why your nose is right by your mouth. Because whenever it's like I, in his mouth. And whenever I get my sense of smell back, I'm going to appreciate that once again. We're talking to Joey Vitale, the Blues analyst for 101 ESPN. All right, Joey, let's talk a little bit about this team because I, I couldn't have been more impressed so far with what we've seen from some of the young guys. You talk Cairo, you talk uh, Costin with what he did, and I, I've been so impressed as well with Jake Neighbors. What have you seen so far that has stood out to you about the development of some of those young kids? Well, listen, it's like the first time I saw the movie The Gladiator. I mean, that opening scene where the dog's running up and down the battlefield and he's chopping heads off and getting swords stuck in the tree. I mean, that was like, that was a big bang, right? That's why I knew I was in for a good movie. And, and I'm kind of looking at the blue season. I hope we're looking at a, a movie like The Gladiator because the first scene in the first week of their season reminded me just about what Russell Crowe did on the battlefield. I mean, it was, it was as good as it gets. I mean, th- there's not much more you could really expect or ask for in the first three games going up against division opponents on the road. I mean, yes, Colorado was missing a couple pieces in McKinnon and Landis Coggin, and then you go to Vegas, and yes, they're, of course, missing Stone and Pacioretty and, and a couple big names like that. But at the same time, those are very good hockey teams. Those are very hostile buildings. I mean, I think that Vegas Golden Knights were like 25-5-2 and two or something around there in that building last year. So a team that takes a lot of pride playing in that building. So tough buildings, tough teams on the road. Um, you got rust to shake off just like every other team. Uh, so I, I look at the way they started this year, and, and there's so many just amazing bright spots that, that stand out. I mean, start with the goaltending. I mean, Jordan Bennington, I, I know his save percentage and the goals against the first two games weren't all that glamorous. But listen, guys, like he was getting left completely hung out to dry, on especially that Arizona game. Late in that game, they're up by three or four goals, and, and everyone just stopped playing defense. And he had like three or four point-blank opportunities right in front of him, and, and he needed help. Right? I think they tightened it up in Vegas. They recognized that, hey, we've we, we got to get the work for our goaltender here. This isn't right. Uh, so his numbers weren't all that great, but my goodness, Jordan Biddington looked as close to the 2019 form that I've seen probably in a long time. So that's number positive, number one. Um, you can go in 100 different directions, but the, the one other thing I'll say before we move on is I, I love the fact that the Blues can now rely on youth. And, yes, it's early. I'm not going to sit here and say this is how it's going to be all season long, but it, it's a great start. It's a great start because last year, talking to all these players in the offseason and kind of breaking down what went wrong last year. The biggest thing that everyone's always said to me, the biggest reason why the Blues did not um, come to fruition, I think, last year, maybe a little bit of the year before, was they just they, they had no youthful guys they could just turn to that could just grab the game and take the game over. Think of like what Cole Caulfield did last year for the Montreal Canadiens to make him all the way to, to the finals against Tampa Bay. A young guy that comes in, not only skates hard and forechecks hard and gets his hits. I mean, yeah, those are our great things. But you need someone to go out there and actually produce. You need production out of young guys. This is what was so amazing about this first road trip, where you look at, like, maybe Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron, who had a great first game, right? But then they, they were goose eggs in the second game against Arizona, and they were just they were okay versus Vegas. But the Blues just completely took over. Cairo, Costin, I mean, coming alive. Jake Neighbors. I've loved Jake Wallman's game, another kid. So the veterans can look down the bench and say, hey, 
young guys, you take it tonight. And the young guys are going to do it and produce at a really good rate, which can help this team win. Joe, you mentioned Jake Wallman, and today he was skating with Colton Pareko on the number one unit, and I think he was catapulted to that unit with Pareko at the end of that Vegas Golden Knights game. Uh, you mentioned that you've loved his game. Are we starting to see Jake Wallman kind of break through as somebody who could get some top four opportunities? Well, I, I think so, Alex. He he seems very, very confident. I mean, I saw him playing sewer ball before the Vegas game, and, and this was a kid that last year around this time was a, a pretty tentative, you know, he's early in his career. He's just trying to fit in. He's just trying to make it and trying to open some eyes. Uh, completely different, a 180 in personality. I mean, he just seems got this swagger about him. I said, hey, what's up, Jake? And he goes, call me Jake the Snake. You know what I mean? Like little things like that. He just like, he's got a personality about him. He's a really funny kid. And, you know, seeing him kind of evolve, from a personality standpoint, to find confidence off the ice, uh, being around this team over and over. Um, I just think, I think Jake, from, from what it looks like to me, from an outsider looking in, and, and he may correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I doubt it because this is where usually it goes for young, young players. They play in the minors for a while. And you know what? You, you get excited when you're first camp. You skate with your, your superstars and your heroes. Then you get sent down. It's almost like you're relieved. Whew, okay. You know, I got I got my camp jersey. I got a couple of pictures of me wearing the big boys jersey. I'm gonna put that on Instagram. It's kind of that good feeling, right? Then you go down to minors, and then year two, year two comes around. You're like, you know what? I'm gonna get a little better this year. You get a little better this year. You stick around maybe a couple extra days. Maybe you get on the second cut instead of the first cut. Feeling good about that. By year three and four, something something switches in the players. Something happens in their brain. I'll never forget how it happened in my brain too. But by the third year, you're like, screw it. Like, I'm not going back to the minor. I, I can't stand it. I can't take the bus trips anymore. I hate pizza at 1 in the morning. I, I don't want to get in it at 8 a.m. just to get be back on the ice and do it all over again. I, I'm exhausted with playing four games in five nights. The hell with going to Adirondack and traveling to Norfolk, Virginia, for a 13-hour bus. He's like, for, you know, it, you're exhausted by it. And finally, you just grab it. I can't, I can't explain it any other way than that. You just grab it. You go out there and you seize an opportunity because you, you just look at it. There's no other option. Miners, AHL, it's not an option anymore. There's an opportunity. I'm going to seize it. I'm going to grab it. I think he started with that last year. And to me, to start things off this year, he's taken ownership of the opportunity given to him. And I think he's looked fantastic. Joey, final question for the Blues analyst of 4101 ESPN and the Blues Radio Network, Joey Vitale. Who are the guys or maybe the individual guy that you're most interested in seeing how they respond to the new spot that they're going to be placed in tomorrow with Buchnevich and Saad being out of the lineup? Are there any players in particular that you're going to keep an eye on if they moved up or down in the lineup? Well, you know, I think the big one is going to be Ivan Barbashev for me. I think he's going to continue to creep up in the lineup um, a player that, as, as we all know, just oozes oozes out of his blood and, and his sweat and tears is is Craig Berube style hockey from from the standpoint of taking care of things defensively, winning faceoffs, closing out games, starting periods. We we know he's bringing all that this year. He's got this unreal offensive upside to him. And I'm not going to say it came out of nowhere. He's he's proven this in the minors. He's proven this in junior hockey. He, he's a goal scorer. He, he's a point producer. He's never done it to uh, the level of what he could possibly do this year. But I think Craig Ruby's looking at him like, not only am I going to put him out here to be a dependable defensive shutdown guy, but this guy can chip in on the offensive side of things. I mean, that goal that he had in Arizona from Robert Thomas, I mean, to me, that, that is what Ivan Barbashev is all about. You know, he, he's good below the dots. He holds on to the puck for a smaller guy. He makes smart decisions with the puck. He's never going to throw the puck away. For those reasons, I think he's going to start finding some top six minutes. And I think through those top six minutes, I think we'll see more and more point production out of him, which is to me is going to be an awesome thing because the team can surely use it. 
Joey, today we have talked about orbital bones, the importance of smell, gladiator, and got some great hockey analysis. I think we covered all the bases. Thanks for hopping on, buddy. This is a good breakdown. Just imagine what we could do if we had 30 minutes. Holy smokes. All right, guys, have a great day. You got it. That's Joey Vitale, Blues analyst for 101 ESPN, joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Alex, who's the guy, if I asked you the same question that I just asked Joey, who's the guy that you're most interested in seeing how they respond to being moved potentially up in the lineup? Clem Costin. I want to see what Costin does. But a close second would be Jake Wallman. I want to see how Jake Wallman responds. But I, I like the idea of Costin. You know, I, I forgot what the question was, but you asked me a couple weeks ago if Costin's ever going to live up to the potential of what fans hoped when he was drafted, and I said no. After what I saw against the Arizona Coyotes, he's got the potential of being 15, maybe 20-goal scorer on a really good year, but he's only going to prove that on an opportunity like this. And, and I tell you what, if Costin performs at this level like Jake Neighbors has performed and Ivan Barbashev and Oscar Sundquist can perform, it makes Vladimir Tarasenko that much easier to trade when you got a bunch of guys who can perform in your top nine. I'm also interested to see what James Neal does on that line with Shin and Kyra. It feels like everybody that's been placed in that line has, has had a decent amount of success that that's just going. It, it almost feels like that's become what O'Reilly and Perron have been in recent years, where you put somebody onto that line if they're struggling. Hey, we got to get this guy going. OK, put him up there with Perron and O'Reilly. They'll, they'll start going offensively. I think you have two of those lines now with Shin and Kyra as well. I'm curious to see what James Neal looks like on that line. I don't think it's a long term fixture. But with Buchnevich out, he's going to at least get an opportunity. Yeah, James Neal's, I mean, look, I don't think he's played bad. He's just, he hasn't been as noticeable as he was in preseason. But again, it's hard to do that when you play 10, 11 minutes of ice time. He's going to have a big shot, though, if no Sod and no uh, Buchnevich. He's going to be probably relied upon in a top nine role. Blues are back on the ice tomorrow night. Home opener against the LA Kings. Alex Ferrario will have your pre and post game coverage. Pre game beginning at six o'clock. Joey Vitale will be on the call with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But coming up next, MLB.com says this shortstop might have to settle for a one year deal. We'll tell you who it is next. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. the shortstops according to mlb.com might have to settle for a one-year contract this upcoming offseason with alex ferrario and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley it's bk and ferrario live from the new e and b granite studio at the centene community ice center alex the the shortstop that they believe is most likely to have to settle for the one-year deal javi baez he could be in this situation as well but the shortstop they mentioned is Trevor Story. And this is not via some random blogger. This is Mark Feinsand who's saying this. And Feinsand is very connected. And he's the guy that will uh, go all in on the offseason. He's going to preview everything throughout the offseason over on MLB.com. He went through the nine teams most likely to get Trevor Story. And he did specifically mention the Cardinals. He said it would potentially have to uh, require the Cardinals to trade Paul DeYoung, as we've talked about. But they would be an interesting possibility for him. Here's what he said. Said story compares favorably with a number of his fellow free agents, including Carlos Correa, Baez, and Corey Seager. None of them are expected to command the $340 million that Lindor got from the Mets, and Story's underwhelming season will likely hamper, hamper the overall value of his next contract. Marcus Simeon took the one-year deal worth $18 million in a similar situation a year ago. Could Trevor Story take a one- or a two-year deal worth 20 or so million dollars in free agency and then give it another whirl in 2022 or 2023? Alex, I think this is the best-case scenario for the Cardinals. If they end up in a situation where 
Trevor Story is sitting there out there on the market. He doesn't like his five, six, seven, eight year offers. And he ends up deciding to settle for a two year deal worth 40 to $50 million. That's a situation where I feel like it is a no brainer. The Cardinals have to sign him. Like, forget all of the other stuff that we've talked about in the offseason. Set all of that aside for a second. This would become a must if he ends up settling for a one- or two-year deal, and he's interested in coming to play for St. Louis. If it's a one-year deal, you have to sign him. I mean, if it's $20 million in one year, one year what is that going to hurt you? You're basically saying, we're going to go for it all right now because we're going to get this guy. Maybe we lock him up long-term after this year if we can find some financial wiggle room there. But, yeah, if this is anything less than a five-year deal, you'd be insane not to take a shot at this one. My concern is if it's a one- or two-year deal, I feel like that might take the Cardinals out of the running because another team might be more willing to spend a lot more on him. Or if he's going to go a one- to two-year deal, I wonder if he looks at a team that might be a little bit more favorable for him, like him being from Texas. Maybe he wants to go play for the Rangers for one or two or years. More offensive-friendly More offensive-friendly, or maybe where he can have the DH possibility as well which I know it's possibly going to be in everywhere, but it just depends on when he signs. But and I, I, He's not going to be a candidate for that. He's so good defensively at well, shortstop that I, I'd be surprised if that plays into it. But, yeah, him. I mean, if it's a one- or two-year deal, I mean, frankly, the Cardinals should go all out in getting that player because what you're going to have to spend to get a Corey Seager or a Carlos Correa and you got to pay half of that for him for one or two years, I mean, that makes you a World Series contender, in my opinion, for those two years. I am curious... I like Trevor's story. I think he fits really well with what the Cardinals are doing. I do think there's going to be some fans, though, that look at it and, and have some of the same questions that they had about Nolan Arenado, and obviously those were unjustified because we saw Arenado was great this year for the Cardinals. But there are some real core splits that are taking place with Trevor Story. However much you want to believe in those, they do exist. He's a 300 hitter at home. And he's been a 240 hitter on the road. His OPS at home in his career is 975. His OPS on the road is 750. So he's been a solid hitter on the road, but he's a perennial all-star at home so far in his career and an above-average major league hitter on the road. If he is simply an 800, 825 OPS guy for the Cardinals and they get him on this two-year deal, that's good enough. You can live with that. That's that's like good version of Paul DeYoung. So you'd take it. But I, I do wonder... This past year raised some questions, and I think that's why it's possible that he's going to have to settle for this one- or two-year deal because he didn't have a very good year. He hit 250, even being in Coors. He finished the season with 24 home runs in 140 games, um, and, and he just wasn't the same defensively either. He had an elbow issue, and I think that's the big question, kind of like Arenado last year. How healthy is he? Well, look, he won it out. I mean, he won it out of Colorado. That was the more important thing. Yeah, so between all of these different questions – um, you're going to have to need some answers into the offseason. But on a one- or a two-year deal, that's the kind of risk I'm willing to take. Yeah. I asked you earlier, are you willing to take the risk on one of these free agent pitchers who's maybe coming into it as an injury question? And for me, the answer is no on the pitcher side. With Trevor Story, even despite the elbow issues that he had a year ago, I'd be willing to sign up for that. Now, if you've got real questions about the elbow and you're giving him a seven-year deal, that's different to me. Yeah. But on a one- or a two-year contract, I think it still makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if we're going one- or two-year contract, I'm under the assumption that Correa and Seager aren't doing those one- or two-year contracts. That's why I'm considering Trevor Story right here because if it was all on the same level, Troyer would probably be my fourth or fifth shortstop that I'm going after. But in this scenario, if I know he's going to be a two-year deal – 
And if there are elbow concerns, but I mean, it wasn't to the point where you're sitting here looking at him like, oh, he's not going to be available for you or half the player he was because the year prior he was a really good player. I mean, he was an MVP candidate in the pandemic year. So, yeah, I'm taking a shot at Trevor Story no matter what because he he fixes all of my problems except that left-handed bat. But maybe Nolan Gorman, because if I'm bringing in Trevor Story, I'm not putting all of this pressure on Nolan Gorman to be a savior to my team offensively. Because right now, if you don't do anything and just promote from within, you're putting a lot of pressure on a 21-year-old to be your savior. So here's the question. If you ended up signing Trevor Story, let's say it's a two-year deal worth $48 million. So two years, $24 million per season. If you sign Story and you've got about, let's call it $15, $20 million left to pay uh, play with because you ended up trading... Uh, Paul DeYoung as well. So you got 15 to $20 million left to spend. You sign Story, you get a couple of relievers, you add a guy that could either be a, a back-end starter or a reliever, and then you add one, maybe two bench bats on the cheap. So we're, we're talking about Matt Duffy, th- those kinds of guys. Is that enough? Would that be a successful offseason in your guys' mind? I think that's a very successful offseason because you've addressed your biggest problem in terms of offensive help to your lineup, and that's on the shortstop position, which makes you better. You've strengthened your bench. You've made your bullpen a little bit better, and you've fixed your rotation. So, yeah, I'd say that's probably the ideal offseason for the Cardinals. Tanner, what what would you say to that? I think I agree. I think that's the ideal offseason because I think I, I said yesterday, I think if you're the Cardinals, the ideal opportunity for you is hope that the shortstop market plays into your hand, which if this is the case, that's what the Trevor Story deal would do. And then you go make those small upgrades on the bench. You give some kids a shot with Yepes and Gorman as well. And then, like you said, you get maybe add a bullpen arm, add another fifth starter to that. I, I think that's the ideal offseason. Then you can go from there and figure out, okay, piece A didn't work. Let's go solve that at the trade deadline. I think I'm with you guys. I think this is the best case scenario, in fact. Like, not only is it uh, enough. Best case scenario is Corey Seager at shortstop, in my opinion. Because I think he's that left handed bat that has the postseason performance. Realistically speaking, though, let's say Corey Seager gets $30 million per year. And you end up having another $10 million to spend. I just think that limits you on what you're able to do elsewhere for this upcoming year. But is, but is Tr- Trevor's story. It's a $5 million difference. That's what Eight, I'm looking at. Yeah, five, Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's it's a pretty significant And difference. the years you're committing to it, I guess, is the more important thing the with this, too. The flexibility that it will, would allow you to have if we're talking about Trevor Story, I, I do think that might be the best-case scenario for this team Yeah, because you are still able to go out there and make other upgrades elsewhere. You can go get a slight upgrade on your bench you can go get a few different relievers and maybe one of which at least competes for that fifth spot in the rotation you trade Paul DeYoung and hopefully it does bring in one of those relievers as well as we talked about earlier you go find your next version of Cabrera or Gallegos who's on the cusp somewhere else but they have a bigger need at shortstop than they do in their bullpen and so you're able to make that deal that works for both sides I think that's the best case scenario for me that's kind of how I'm looking at it is I've come full circle Earlier in the season, I, I, I was all about Trevor Story as being the, the option that the Cardinals should be looking into. I think I'm back to that. Uh, I, I would love to have Corey Seager, and the left-handed bat makes a lot of sense. But I don't want to give up this identity that the Cardinals have had of defense and base running. And if you're looking at all of the shortstops that are available, and you're adding in the cost that goes along with it, the guy that plays most into what the Cardinals do in that regard is Trevor Story. He's a really good base runner. He does have speed. He's... Last year, he was average defensively, but in his career, he's been very good defensively. 
I think he's the one that fits the best for them. And I think he's the one that's going to cost you the least amount. So I think he's the best fit for the Cardinals, Tanner. I, I think I agree with you. I think I'm kind of at the point where I think Trevor Story is going to end up. If there's going to be a shortstop that the Cardinals sign, I think the guy is going to be Trevor Story. But I, I do I do think that if you're the Cardinals, I still am on the train of Alex where I want to see Corey Siegel, Corey Seager on that deal. because Siegel the Eagle. Yes, exactly. Because... I understand that it limits your resources and, you know, adding some of these depth pieces, but I can give, I can go take a, I would, if I sign Seager, I'm still bringing in another starter, maybe another bullpen armor, maybe that's where I leave it there. And then I give the kids a shot to be the bench bats. And if it doesn't work out, then it comes down to the trade deadline. You have to be able to nail the trade deadline. And Mo in recent years hasn't been aggressive at the deadline and been willing to pull off the moves possibly necessary, but I, I think he would in a winning window. And I, I think to me, Get that. I think you said this yesterday, Alex, or a couple days ago. Get one of the big ones to plug that hole at shortstop. Corey Seager, left-handed power hitting bat, makes sense to me because you need a left-handed bat in this starting lineup. And then I can supplement whatever depth that I'm missing at the trade deadline because that's what all the good teams did this year. So that's kind of how I view it. But I'm with you. I can see your point, BK, and I'm with you. I think the most realistic one that I'm coming to that the Cardinals will do is that it's going to be Trevor Story if it comes to a deal like this. Yeah, by no means am I going to be disappointed if they get Trevor Story. Like, that's a good get, but... Yeah, it's it's an A-plus versus an A. Yeah, Corey Seager, well, I always got A-plus to speak, I don't know about you. Corey Seager is the ultimate option, and, I mean, honestly, look at your bench if you get Corey Seager. Edmundo Sosa's a bench bat for you. Andrew Kisner's a bench bat for you. Lars Newbar. Nolan Gorman, Juan Yepes, maybe you find somebody on the cheap that can be there with a little bit more veteran experience. That's a pretty solid-looking bench compared to what it was last year for you. It's got more upside. And you have fixed the biggest need in terms of the left-handed power bat, but also shortstop. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Eno Saris is a baseball writer for The Athletic. I do want to ask him about the pitching side of things. What's he think of the Cardinals' current rotation options for next year, and how does he think they should try to construct this pitching staff in the offseason? We'll ask Eno about that coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, Alex said he's got an interesting discussion piece for the Junk Drawer here on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. In about five minutes, we'll talk to Eno Saris of The Athletic about the Cardinals' rotation options for next season. Alex, I public restrooms are always an interesting place to go. I know you have a deathly fear of them. <laughs> Boy, that is a interesting way to start a conversation. So, Also, I, don't like when people talk to me in public restrooms. That's I, weird, too. You don't like when people talk to you in that's general. Not so that's true. not true. You, you go to the grocery store with... That's on. because Beats it's my Dre personal time. On. It's my personal time. Yeah, I'm I may just try saying. that today. I'm going to the grocery store. Maybe I'll try that. I'll put my headphones on. It's really not that hard. You just put headphones on. I'm just saying, you, you know, it, it signifies that you would prefer people not talk to you. No, I'm fine with people talking to me, just in the right time and space. So I was in the restroom recently, public restroom, and you hear underneath, uh, there's there's a man in the stall, and you hear the boom, boom, boom. As he's trying to roll over the toilet paper, oh, and there is nothing. <laughs> that's a brutal bowel movement if that's the noise you're hearing. There's there's just nothing there. Woof. It's gone. It's over. And all I hear after that is, mother bleeper. 
It's gone. My God. He clearly had no idea that I was in the restroom. Woof. And I'm awkward, as you know, and so I'm uncomfortable in this situation. I don't know what to do. What's the protocol in that spot? What's the man code? Like, do I need to then be like, hey, man, you need some more toilet paper. I got you. Yeah. What would you put yourself in that gentleman's situation? You have no toilet paper and you need some toilet paper for obvious reasons. If you knew there was someone else in the restroom and they didn't say anything or offer anything to you, how'd you feel? Isn't it on him, though, to ask me? Hey, I brother, mean, technically, can, it's do, on do you, him to look mind? at. This isn't like, the techni- coffee situation like yesterday. I technically, think it's it is on him to like walk into the stall and before you drop your pants, you check and make sure there's toilet paper in there. Like I've done that. He well, had to really that. go. Let's be honest. I still would check. And, and like you know, sometimes it happens and you don't check, and that's okay. But I feel like this is something that he's got to bring up to me. Not that I've got to be courteous to him. He's got to say to me, "Hey, do you mind helping me?" Helping yeah, but I think if he if he yells that obscenity, I think you'd say, "Is everything all right?" No. And that gentleman would respond with, "Do could you grab me some toilet paper?" Yeah, I think I think I would go on the path of I would wait till he asked because I'd be afraid to know what he may answer if I asked him what's wrong. Somebody from the 636-65780 Zero Comfort Service text line. Dude, so now you want people to ask for things. Yeah, yeah. I feel like he should ask me in that spot, hey, do you mind grabbing me some toilet paper? The proper thing to do is what Tanner asked during the commercial break in that situation. Tanner, what did you ask BK if he said to him? Oh, when he saw him at the sink or whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, did you wipe? Yeah. What like what is what is happening here? The gentleman so, stepped out of the stall with his pants half up and obviously has not wiped because there's no <laughs> toilet paper. So I should I should finish the story. So what I, are we I, doing here? I didn't help him. <laughs> obviously. Obviously, BK's I'm a, jerk. a jerk. Remember uh-huh. remember, ladies and gentlemen, BK, quote unquote, F those kids. So I did not help him. Uh, this is a gentleman who's probably in his mid fifties. And uh, he he walks out of the stall as I'm washing my hands. And he just, we make eye contact. And there was just a sudden stop from him. So he clearly did not know that I was in there. And he's just looking at me like, oh. You're at that awkward crossroads of... I, uh, you now know that I have not wiped and I pulled my pants halfway up and stepped out of the stall. <laughs> and then I look at him, I just give him the head nod, finish wash, wa- uh, washing my hands, wipe them off and walk out. Someone texted in and said, that's how I met my husband. I don't think that's right. What? What? There's some follow-up See, this is, yeah, yeah, people are calling you out, man. You gotta, you gotta give this guy some toilet paper. You gotta. If you hear him yell that audibly, I, he's frustrated because I, he needs to wipe. I really wish that he knew you were in there because then that awkward eye contact, he probably wouldn't like, dude, See, I could have used a little help here. That's the other thing. You don't sit on a toilet seat without using the toilet paper to wipe the toilet seat down to know that there's toilet seat or toilet paper in that so stall. So my guess is there must have been some in there when he first got in. Well, then how, Otherwise, there's no reason why he would have been rolling. Well, then he how, must have ran out. How ravaged did this man use toilet well, paper know, in man. one sitting? It's pretty simple, man. You only use it once. I don't know. I, 
I was stunned by the whole situation, and now I understand why you don't go to public restrooms. Yep, this is why I don't like to use public restrooms, and I will hold it until I get home. Coming up in 15 minutes, the Blues are going to be without the two players they brought in this offseason. What does that mean for us in terms of the learning experience? We're going to find out tomorrow night. We'll talk about that at 1.15. But Eno Saris, baseball writer for The Athletic, is going to help us figure out what the Cardinals need to do with their rotation this offseason. Eno joins us next on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. And right now, we are very happy to go out to the Browning Group and Celebrity Line to be joined by a baseball writer for The Athletic. He is Eno Saris. He has some of the best breakdowns for pitchers that you can find. And the other day, Alex, he tweeted out, if your team is definitely headed towards the postseason, it seems like the thing to do right now is get like six or seven guys stretched out to 80 or more pitches if you can. You're going to use like five relievers you trust anyways maybe you should try piggybacking in september or october for preparation and when he tweeted that out i knew i wanted to get him on to be able to talk about maybe the cardinals being a team that could do something like that next year Eno, first of all thanks for the time as always how you doing today man i'm doing good thanks for having me on absolutely so when you tweeted that out i was thinking about the cardinals in my mind and wondering okay are they the type of team that could maybe implement a strategy such as that. Because you think about the the young pitchers that they have currently in the system. I'm thinking Woodford and Oviedo and Liberator. Um, you look at what they have at the back end of their rotation right now. When you think about what you tweeted, do the Cardinals come to mind as a team that maybe could execute a plan like that? Yes, and um, I mean, it's a really difficult plan to, to, to thread the needle on because you you know, if you're trying to, like the Dodgers or the Cardinals, just get in, um, then you don't really want to muck around with any sort of prep work. You know, it's kind of one of those things where it's better if you know you're in, then you can kind of do this stuff. But I think Liberator is a really good example of what teams could do, which is, you know, if you have a hot young starting pitcher in the minor leagues, consider putting him on your playoff roster instead of that seventh reliever because you never really trusted that seventh reliever to begin with. And you may find you got Tanner Houck or Nick Pavetta, um, you know, just sitting there on your playoff roster when you need him. There's always going to be extra innings. And then the, the way we're using starting pitchers now, if your starter comes out in the third, but it's still a tight game, you might need someone to come in for three innings, and it's not going to be your seventh reliever. So, you know, I think Liberator could be the ideal kind of guy. Maybe he come up and, starts or maybe he's been up for most of the year but you know to have a young guy like that that maybe the league hasn't seen so much um i think would be great to have on tap and in fact the way that you know teams need to build their their starting rotations now they need to build it seven eight nine deep uh for the season anyway so i think the ideal thing would be a liberator would be like your six or seven starter not start in the major league uh get some time in the major league maybe not be uh, playing in September when everyone's fully healthy and then and then make it on the playoff roster anyway. So that's the sort of games I think people need to play now because starting pitchers are going, you know, 60 pitches now, 80 pitches. They're not going deep in the games in the, play, in the playoffs. 
that was where I was going to go next with it, you know, with Matthew Libertor, because he's an interesting one. You know, I've heard people talk about possibly using him like what the Dodgers have done with Julio Urias. Is that the best path for Matthew Libertor next season? Because even if he dominates in spring training, is that your opinion, his best path of starting with Memphis and just continuing to be stretched out and midseason injury or no injury coming up and being a part of the team's rotation or bullpen? Yeah, I you know, and another thing that teams are finding is that um, older starters, you know, older starters are aging better these days. It has something to do with, you know, I have a piece on this that, uh, you know, Wainwright is not just a one-off thing. You know, there are other older starters that are doing really well. It has to do with batters striking out more so older pitchers can get those Ks and stick around. Um, and it also has to do... Um, just with uh, with how the game is, you know, you don't have to throw your fastball as much anymore. So maybe it doesn't matter that your fastball is 88 or whatever. So, um, you know, what I think the, the Cardinals should do is probably sign some older pitchers, maybe one more than Wainwright uh, for the back end. You know, I'm thinking of, like, maybe Kershaw, depending on what his demands are. Uh, you know, he's injured, so, it, you know, I don't think he can ask for that much. Maybe Verlander coming off of injury. Maybe even a Granke. You know, these guys on a one- or two-year deal could come in, give you a back end so that Libertor starts in the minor leagues. Libertor, you know, just advances just as much as he needs to, and he's going to pitch next year. You know, those you know guys get injured all the time. He's going to pitch in the major leagues. And you bring him along. You don't let anybody see him as much as possible. Um, and then you hopefully say, oh, boom, we got Libertor in the third inning of the NLCS in 2022. And you guys haven't seen much of him at all. We're talking to Eno Saris, baseball writer for The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at his name, Eno Saris, S-A-R-R-I-S. You know, as we're talking about some of the offseason decisions for teams and specifically the Cardinals, it, it's it's very interesting to me the way that teams are going to construct their pitching staffs going into the offseason. Because as I'm watching the Dodgers and I'm watching uh, all of these teams, really, their pitchers are going, their starters are going three, maybe four innings on on the good side of things at times. And that's just totally different than the way that the game is played in the regular season. And it's been trending this way for a while, but I feel like it's almost come to a head this year. How difficult in your mind is it going to be for teams to construct a pitching staff for the regular season and then also maximize that staff for the postseason? Because it almost feels like two different sports that are being played right now. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. Um, you, you hear like Billy Bean sort of talking about, you know, my poop doesn't work in the playoffs. Um, yeah, and then it just uh, the Rays, you know, I thought the Rays had a really good plan where they had like five 80-pitch pitchers and then a ton of good relievers, but, you know, it didn't work out for them either. Um, and I think it kind of didn't work out because they needed, you know, one or two more uh, long pitchers. So there's – I think what's happening is, and this, this part's kind of cool, I think what's happening is that teams are realizing that there are no, it's not just like two buckets. You don't just have a guy who can throw 120 pitches and a guy who can throw 20 pitches. There are guys who can throw 40 and 60 pitches, and there are guys who can throw 80. Um, and we're probably moving towards that as a sport in the regular season anyway, um, but um, with roster rules, with the way people play 162 it is a little bit different than when you get in the postseason. That's why I think September needs to be a time for every team to kind of almost transition to playoff ball when they need to start uh, considering taking players out, the pitchers out early and seeing which of their levers can be stressed. However, 
you can't stretch your relievers all the way through September and October. You know what I mean? Like, if you were pitching Max Scherzer on his throw day all the way through September, mm-hmm. he'd just be done, you know? So, uh, to some extent, this stuff is just going to happen in October. Um, I don't know if we need to bake in more rest days. Then the playoffs get even longer. The playoffs getting longer. I, I, I hope seeing Matt Serzer say, my arm was dead, I hope that some teams say, you know what, I don't need to throw my starters on every, uh, on every throw day. What if I just have a better bullpen? Or what if I do this or what if I do that? What if I don't touch Max Scherzer? So I can have Max Scherzer on his A game when he starts and he can go 120 pitches and dominate instead of you know closing out this other game. So uh, I think that some of the stuff that's happening in this playoffs may change things going forward. So, you know, with that being said, and when you look at this Cardinals upcoming offseason, you know, we've talked about how the bullpen's a big necessity. I know our producer Tanner Hendrickson believes that. And then we've also talked about what we talked earlier, uh, that you find some some help for the rotation. Where do you stand in terms of the biggest need for the Cardinals offseason? Well, you know, I think the biggest question, which is a little bit different, and I'm not answering your question right off the bat, but um, the biggest question is shortstop, I think. Um, because I think Paul DeYoung can be fine, but if you really want an offensive upgrade, there are a bunch of really expensive and exciting uh, shortstops on the market this year with Story, Baez, Correa. There's a bunch of chances to kind of remake your uh, – like if they sign one of those guys, they'd have the best infield in baseball. So, you know, uh, and then, uh, you know, youth on the outfield. It would be really exciting. You know, there's one pathway where you spend all your money on a shortstop um, and then – kind of uh, patch patchwork your, your pitching, get, get an older starter, get Granky, uh, you know, get, get uh, a reliever that people aren't really targeting, uh, that sort of deal. Maybe trade for a Kimbrel if there's enough money left. I mean, it's a question of how much money is left, and it's a question of what they do at shortstop. If they don't go big on shortstop, they can bid for somebody like Max Scherzer, remake their rotation with another ace at the top, um, and then uh, try to find some relievers. But... Generally, I, I'm not that big on spending big on relievers. That older pitching market that you, you talked about, you know, I, don't, I, I know you're not an agent, so it's kind of hard to project these things sometimes, but how much do you think it's going to cost to get some of those guys? Like, for, for example, Zach Grinke, is he going to have a big market this offseason? I think he'll have a market. Um, you know, I think you can look just to last year. There was a lot of pitchers that signed in the 1 and 10 uh, bucket. Kluber. Uh, Garrett Richards, um, uh, Rich Hill, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys. Yeah, Wayno, yeah. You know, I think you'd be looking to get him at 1 and 10 or 2 and 20. And I think you, if you just put that sort of deal on the table for a bunch of different veterans, uh, you'll snag one. And on the shortstop portion, the final question that I had for you, Eno. If you were in charge of the Cardinals and I said, okay, uh, knowing what we know about what's, what it's likely going to cost for each of them and the differences in the price, which one would you be targeting going into the offseason? 100% Carlos Correa. 100%. I know that he doesn't pop as maybe the top three shortstop and that Baez has had better seasons. Um, Story has had better seasons probably. Uh, but Baez has, uh, I mean, you guys have seen this. He has a terrible plate approach, and it does not, that type of plate approach does not age well. It's the Josh Hamilton plate approach. It's the Pablo Sandoval plate approach. Those guys do not age well, and it's not a mistake. That you, when you're, your ability to make contact outside the zone just disappears at one point. 
So I don't want to be holding the bag uh, when Javier Baez stops making contact on pitches outside the zone. So, uh, you know, I like Trevor's story. And if he's undervalued because of the bad season and because of Coors or whatever, you know, I think, you know, the Cardinals know really well how, how awesome former Coors players can be, even in other parks. So, you know, pairing Story and Arenado, that makes a lot of sense if he's cheaper than Correa. But if I had, if I had my druthers and all the money in the world, I'd sign Carlos Correa. He's Eno Saris, baseball writer for The Athletic, has outstanding work over at The Athletic, and it's well worth the cost of subscription. You should check his out his work over there where he does fantastic baseball breakdowns. Eno, always appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. All right, thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's Eno Saris joining us here on BK and Ferrario. If you could get one of those veteran pitchers that he's talking about for a one-year, 10 to $12 million contract, like whether that be Zach Greinke or... I, I don't know if Clayton Kershaw is the one that I would want just because of the injury questions. Yeah, but if you do, if you could do with Clayton Kershaw what uh, Eno just said there about Max Scherzer, like give him time in between and use him at full strength when you absolutely need it, like you have the luxury of doing that with the depth you have. Tanner, who would you want out of that group? The, the older veteran starters who could potentially be available in that 10 to $12 million bucket. Are there any that stand out to you maybe among the rest? Uh, I, I think maybe I would look at, if I'm being honest with you, if, if it's a 5 to $10 million deal for a veteran guy like a Justin Verlander, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke, I don't know if I have interest in any of those guys. And the reason I say that is they're all have those three to me are breaking down. Kershaw was hurt all year this year. Verlander's coming off of Tommy John, so I don't quite know, A, when he'll be ready, or B, uh, how he'll look when he comes back. And then with Zach Greinke, Zach Greinke dealt with an injury near the end of this season too. So if I'm being honest with you, I would rather bring back a John Lester, Jay Happ, or Wade LeBlanc rather than one of those three big veteran names. So you'd rather have like the Steven Matz or Tyler Andersons even than, than one of those older guys? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't know if I want another older pitcher. I mean, we have one already in Wayno. I don't know if I really want two... 40-plus-year-old guys at the top end of my rotation, for even if it is another 5 to $10 million. Man, I think Zach Greinke would make a lot of sense here. I, I am concerned. I, I'm with you, Tanner, on the, the injury questions with him because at the end of the year, he did seem to be breaking down, and his ERA over the last two years really has been on the high side he, of things, although you can throw 2020 out for most guys. And I get what Eno was saying about you know uh, not having to throw your fastball as much, but his fastball velocity has just completely gone downhill ever since he signed that big contract originally mm -hmm. with Arizona. So that, to me, is a little concerning. Yeah, his fastball is the same now as as uh, Adam Wainwright's. He's throwing 89. He, he's touching 90, but he's sitting at 89 now. So uh, he, he makes some sense in a lot of ways, and he's going to be a guy that can eat innings for you I don't know that he helps you in the playoffs. I think he's a guy that you would sign because you know you're going to get 30 starts out of him, and he's probably going to throw around 180 innings. Well, that's just Tanner, so there's value. Tanner doesn't care about the playoffs. Tanner just wants a good regular season. That's a good point. It's 120. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex <laughs> jeweler. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go. That's coming up in 15 minutes. But next, the Blues are going to be without two players they brought in in the offseason. They're two high-priced items. What can we learn from this game without those two being in there? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture, the real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN.
show. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Blues back in action tomorrow night. A game you'll hear right here on your home for the Blues. Blues versus Kings in the home opener out at Enterprise Center. Alex, they're going to be without Pavel Buchnevich and Brandon Saad tomorrow night. The two big offseason acquisitions, not going to be able to play. Buchnevich is suspended for one more game, and Brandon Saad is in the COVID protocols right now for the NHL. And that means that you're going to see some of these younger guys getting opportunities up in the lineup. Earlier today, they had Clem Costin on the top line with O'Reilly and Perron. You saw James Neal on the second line earlier today, and that opened up the fourth line spot for Jake Neighbors as well. What do you think we can learn about this version of the Blues? It's basically the same roster, mostly the same roster that we saw a year ago. What can we learn about this Blues team tomorrow night against the Kings? How good their depth truly is. That's what I'm going to be most interested against this Kings team. Because look, yes, the Kings aren't a great team, but they're better than what people give them credit for. And if you're going to be able to go out there and perform without Buchnevich and Brandon Saad, the guys that you brought in to help fix your offense. Now, if you go out and win a one nothing game, then I think you might be talking about, okay, these guys are important. Because look, with no Buchnevich, you scored three goals and one was an empty netter against the Vegas Golden Knights. So it took away some of that dual threat that you have with lines. But I think you're about to find out how deep your roster truly is. I mean, think about this. You're without two of your top six forwards, and you don't have to call anybody up from the minor leagues. You're able to just plug and play with a Clem Costin, a Jake Neighbors, a James Neal, Kyle Clifford, who's basically slated to be a fourth-line guy this season. But Ivan Barbashev can move up. Heck, Tyler Bozak could move up if you need him to. So I think what uh, what we're about to learn tomorrow night against the Kings is is this team truly as deep as we made them out to be? Because if they are, if they are able to succeed without those two players in the lineup, then this is just going to be a dangerous team to deal with all season long. I think what we're going to learn for, for me is, is a similar thing to what you just said, but what's the ceiling on these young guys? It's why I wanted to see Jake Neighbors up on that second line the other night with Pavel Buchnevich out. I wanted to know, hey, are, are you ready for that? Are you ready for top six minutes? And the answer was probably not, not yet. And that's not a... It's not a shot against Jake Neighbors. It's honestly stunning that he's available to be ready to go for the NHL club in any way. And him being a fourth-line player right now is perfectly fine. This is part of the development curve for him. He's 19 years old. It makes sense that he shouldn't be a top-six forward. And that's what I think we learned in the last game. Now we're going to learn that about Clem Costin. And we're going to learn that about this version of James Neal. How do they fit into the top six? And if the answer is, ah, probably better in the bottom six pair bottom six forwards that's fine and it tells you that what you did over the offseason was what you really needed to do I think Pavel Buchnevich you could tell the difference in the lineup uh, the other night without him out there compared to what they looked like in the first two games I thought there was a noticeable drop off with that second line comparatively to what it had with Buchnevich but I want to know with Clem Costin hey are you an upgrade over what Zach Sanford was in the top six last year? With Ivan Barbashev, what do you look like whenever you're in that third line situation? Can can you be somebody that moves up and down depending on, because we know they're going to deal with injuries, depending on where those injuries take place? I think the answer is going to be yes for him. I can't wait to find out what the answer is on Clem Costin because he has surprised the heck out of me so far this season. He's looked so much better, so much more comfortable than he had at any previous time, at least in my opinion. I think this game, too, is going to give us a good taste of how good the defense is because when you're not relying on your four lines that can go continuously against the other team, and not saying that the Blues won't be able to because I do think that they will have the advantage in terms of just their depth of play, but you're going to learn how good your defense is. 
you know, with when you're not relying on guys scoring five, six, seven goals in a hockey game, which they've had in the first two of these three games. And granted, goaltending was phenomenal against the Vegas Golden Knights, but defense not so much when you give up 94 shot attempts in a game. So you're going to find out the one thing that, Tanner, you've been concerned about with this team all year, you're going to find out how decent the defense can actually be without them relying on their top two lines. And that's another thing that I wanted to talk about. Jamie Rivers yesterday on the fast lane, they, they were discussing what the Blues need to get if they are going to trade Vladimir Tarasenko right now. This was part of their sports six-pack. Here's what Jamie Rivers had to say when he was asked about it. Jamie, what kind of return do you need for Vladdy if you are the Blues? Like, what makes you jump at that deal and say, yeah? Top four defenseman. It's that simple. Yep. Top four D. Give me a top four D. Guy who can play 20 minutes plus a game, and you've got yourself a deal. Because that top four D is probably coming in somewhere close as far as a salary match for Vladdy. Probably six to eight million, depending on who the defenseman is. I think it's a dollar for dollar, player for player, need for need. Obviously, if they're looking at Vladimir Tarasenko, they're looking to add a dynamic score to their lineup. And the Blues would be looking for a top four defenseman. So that is what that is the only thing I'm answering the phone for right now if I'm Doug Armstrong. It's pretty clear to me, Alex, that the Blues don't feel like they have an obvious pairing with Colton Pareko right now. Marco Scandella today at practice was down on the third pairing with Robert Bortuzzo. They've got Jake Wallman up. Uh, in that top pairing with Colton Pareko. They just don't really have a guy to put with him right now. And I am interested as well, we talked about the forwards, to find out what Jake Wallman does in that regard. He was pretty good up there in the last game, late in that one. Now he's going to get some real opportunities to play an extended uh, share of the minutes on this one. And I want to find out what he can do because I agree with Jamie. I think that's what the Blues should be looking for. Can Jake Wallman change my mind in that regard? I think the answer is probably no, but let's see. Let's find out. And over the next few games, I hope we're able to see him when that extended uh, extended minutes look. Yeah, uh, Jake Wallman could change your mind in terms of, oh, maybe he does deserve a shot at the top four, but not on a consistent basis. I think right now it's pretty obvious that that's the weakest part of this team is just the depth on defense. We haven't seen Nico Mikola play on a consistent basis yet, and we haven't seen Scott Perunovic yet. Those are the two guys that you're waiting to find out. Can they become something for you? But if I'm trading Vladimir Tarasenko... I either want an elite goal scorer back who is cheap slash young or I want four defensemen. Those are the two things that I'd have to have right now because – And I think it, the elite goal scorer seems unlikely because if a team's trading for Tarasenko, it's probably because they need – Yeah, I mean, unless a team's going to do a hockey trade, right, where you know, I don't think this is going to happen, but, you know, Jack Eichel for Vladimir Tarasenko or sign up for that. Matthew Kachuk for Vladimir Tarasenko. I'd definitely sign up Again, for that. Don't think either of those are going to happen, but that's what I mean. Or you're going to get a, a really highly touted prospect who turns into a goal scorer, which, again, I don't see happening. I, I very much see the same scenario as the Jonathan Drew in Montreal and Tampa. If you're going to trade Vladdy, you got to get a guy who maybe he is NHL ready this year, but he's a little bit needs a little change of scenery like Sergachev did in Montreal. Or maybe they do feel like this guy's ready to take the next step. That's who I'm trading Vladimir Tarasenko for, a guy who can come in and say, I'm a top four defenseman, and I'm going to take that spot. I want to see the reverse Joel Edmondson trade. Let's get Joel Edmondson back. Like, not actually Joel Edmondson, but somebody that can play like that, where you can have him as a top four defenseman with Colton Pareko. See, I want something better than Joel Edmondson. Joel Edmondson was good in Montreal, but Joel Edmondson has not been Mikhail Sergachev with Tampa Bay. I don't know. Can you get that for Vladdy? You got it for Jonathan Druin, and Jonathan Druin was younger, but he wasn't as pure of a goal scorer as Vladimir Tarasenko is. Interesting. If you can get something that good, I mean, 
Uh, I mean, you yeah. need you should get if you're going to trade him and he's only got one year left on his contract and he's what 32, 31 years old. Like he's not that old. Yeah, he's had three shoulder surgeries, but if I know he's 100% healthy and I'm a team looking at him and say he can take me to the next level, then yeah, I'd give up a guy who is in my de- in my defensive core. So that I'm not going anything less than what we saw Tampa acquire for Jonathan Druin because if I'm going Joel Edmondson, I love Joel Edmondson. Thought he was a great player. A big reason why they won the cup. But I need something better than that for Vladimir Tarasenko. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Uh, you give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. One got to go. Coming up next. This is BK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points, and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. Comfort Service Tax Line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. Let's start out with this one. One's got to go Fall Beverage Edition. Oh, you're going to hate all of these. These are alcohol. Yeah, but you hate Fall. Moscow Ain't Mule. <laughs> Old Fashioned. <laughs> red Wine or Stout Beers. Oh. The Moscow Mule Old Fashioned Red Wine or Stout Beers. Which one's got to go? Got to be stout beers, right? Those are disgusting. Stout yeah. beer. See ya. Yeah, stout. What is those? Those are the dark beers. Yes. Yeah. Get the hell out of here dark with this and stuff. Heavy and delicious. It's disgusting. Every time I see that, I think of that commercial of the guy that's at the bar. You want a dark beer, son? I would have. Uh, yeah. All the other ones are too good. Like old fashioned might be number one. Moscow mules are pretty pretty damn good. You like red wine? Yeah, I do like red wine. I like. I prefer red wine over white wine. This may surprise you, but I'm not a big red wine connoisseur. I'm out on that. No, so, what surprises me is that you like dark beer. The Ugh. one's got to go for me is very clearly the red wine. I wish I could be a wine guy. I just can't. You just I don't haven't have had it good me. wine. That's probably True. it. I just don't have it in me. So I've got to go with the red wine. You oh. guys can get out with your stout beers. That's fine. I'll take all of them. To, to get it in Send you, you have way. to drink it, BK. That is a fair point. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go. One got to go maple syrup, honey, jelly, or apple butter. Maple syrup, honey, jelly, or apple butter. All of these suck because if you get it on your hand, then you can never get it off. I don't know. Except for the apple apple butter. butter. Oh my God, dude. Go to Eckert's and get their apple butter. It is sensational, dude. Apple butter is the ultimate number one. I think I'm going to have to get rid of honey. I don't think I use honey that often. I don't drink tea. My wife drinks tea all the time, and she uses honey in it. I don't really know what recipes I put honey on because I use jelly in place of honey on, like, breakfast material. And syrup is syrup's the goat. So, yeah, I'm going to get rid of honey. I don't do a lot with honey, but I, I'm not a fan of jelly. I think I'm going to get rid of jelly. I, just You're not, not my the right thing. right jelly, man. I don't use jelly for anything. You don't make PB&Js? Yeah, those are gross. Not what? really. Not really. I mean, I used to when I was poor and in college. Yeah, but I'm still there. That's fair. Um, I don't do there. a whole lot of jelly nowadays. 
Uh, apple butter, though, is fantastic. Oh. I, I love honey on a Shout good biscuit. Shout out to Eckert's at their apple butter. Fresh butters. made biscuit with some honey. No. Mm, it's delicious. No, it's nasty. And you Put jelly on the honey syrup. or on the biscuit. Oh, we got a text yeah. from the 309. Oh, the irony of the guy that whines all day on the show not being a wine guy. Well played, sir or madam. I appreciate that about you. Oh, I get it. 65780 is the air comfort service text line. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go. One got to go. Rush hour traffic. Airline delays. Lines for the amusement park rides or the DMV line? All of these are a nightmare, so I don't even know how you could get rid of one of them. But I'm going to say I think the flight delay I'd get rid of the most because, like, not only does it suck that you have to sit there and wait even longer for your flight, but if you're doing, like, a connection flight, you've really been messed up because, like, now you either have to run to your next flight or you have to reschedule that one. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the flight delay. That one's the worst. See, I think I'm going to get rid of rush hour traffic because I hate just sitting in my car being stuck. And Alex was bitching all morning about the rush no hour kidding. traffic. Today. Well, that's because I didn't have time to go grab my coffee in the morning and- when I worked till 1 in the morning a couple of days ago. And yeah. BK storms in here should drinking his Starbucks. Is like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Should have. I guess I should have texted you when I ordered this online. That I feel is, really bad about that's that. That's the sure. other thing. That's the other thing that stinks about rush hour traffic. You're running behind there. There's like no solution to it. And I get the connecting flight thing, but at least at an airport, there's like stuff you can do. You can go and there's like a bar there, a sports bar, food. You don't get that in your car. I wish I had a portable bar in my car, but nope. See, that's the thing. It's the rush hour traffic for me because it's the thing that I have to deal with the most often. I fly, I go to amusement parks, and I go to the DMV much less often than I'm driving around 5 yeah, o'clock just, here in St. Louis. You just need to know when to, when, when to and when not to drive. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll just determine time? my whole schedule yeah, what do you that. What do you need to do at 5 o'clock? You're done before then. You get home and you stay home. Some of us aren't always done before around then. Oh, this guy. Oh, this guy. Some of us. Some of us work longer. That's right. Some of us stick around the studio a little after. I've never Alex? seen BK at the studio at 5. What do you got? No, yeah, I was going to say, around, I don't think I've, I've ever seen. Around four, I'm four, in the studio at 5 for Blues pregame. I was about to say, the thing that's funny about this is Alex is actually the one that has to come back to the studio around <laughs> yeah. 5. Usually <laughs> I didn't, but now i got a baby I want to go home and see in between. All right, last one here. One's got to go quarterback edition. Mahomes, Herbert, Allen, or Dak. You're One's doing this because go. you're sour about the Derrick Henry thing, aren't you? Yeah, that's cool. We can talk. Go about ahead, it. T-Bone. What were the options? Gets Mahomes, Mahomes Herbert. Dak, Allen, Herbert. Oh man. I think I'm gonna get rid of Josh Allen. I think I really like Josh Allen. I really like Justin Herbert. I haven't really seen him make any of those kind of boneheaded mistakes. Mahomes doesn't do that. Dak doesn't do that. Allen still, I've seen him. <laughs> Okay. Mahomes was on his back. He he had had two of those boneheaded mistakes. Okay, let me be clear. That's the first time I've seen Mahomes do that. Allen, I've seen do that in the past. I can remember him in the playoff game. Yeah, running around like he's in backyard football, then throwing the pick. So I think I'd get rid of Allen, even though I really love him. So I I think he's the guy, though. I get rid of Justin Herbert. I think about to say Mahomes. No, (laughs) no, I can't. I can't justify that one like I justified the Derrick Henry one. I, I, I just. Justin Herbert's awesome, but the other three have something that I feel like Justin Herbert doesn't. Uh, I'm with Tanner on this one. I would probably go Josh Allen. I think these are four of the top, what, six or seven quarterbacks that you would take long term. I mean, it might be the top four that you would take long term, to be totally honest. So I'm going to go with Josh Allen. Not a shot against him. I just love these other guys. I think Dak Prescott is... 
mentally about as far ahead from everybody else in the league pre-snap as you can find. He's so good, man. He knows exactly where he needs to go to the, with the ball, and he's able to get it out immediately. Mahomes and Herbert are on another level talent-wise. And Josh Allen, just the mistakes. The mistakes are what uh, keep me away from him. Someone so. said Tanner must be from a different planet. His picks are mind-boggling. It used to be me, but then we added Tanner to the show, and I'm Tanner, glad that Tanner's he's here got with some us. strange picks. We'll cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. Time now for the crossover on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie, live from the EB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. The Blues Bud Light 14th Street Party presented by 101 ESPN is one day away. It's actually 24 hours away as of right now. Fans with or without tickets for the home opener tomorrow night are invited to join in on the pregame fun Saturday afternoon. Check out the live music from the Steve Ewing Band. You can hear from Blues Broadcasters, plus Bud Light Happy Hour pricing, local food trucks, and much, much more. It's the 14th Street Party tomorrow at 2 o'clock. More details can be found at 101ESPN.com. Time to cross things over with the fast lane, and it appears that we have former superstar Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers in studio. What's going on, Jamie? How How you doing, buddy? Huh? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm good. How's everything over at the E&B Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center? It couldn't be any better, really. I mean, I guess it would be a little better if the Blues were here. But uh, other than that, oh, it's been wait. excellent. Did they do that to you guys again? Hey, yeah, come on were... out to practice. Yep. How yeah. we're going to practice at Enterprise? Joke's on you. I think it was because of BK. Uh, it's yeah, possible. Of course. It's possible. <laughs> that's, Brandon. That's how this goes. Brandon. Brandon. Your, your goal this year now is to jump on one of those Zooms post-game for the Blues and, no. have, and have Chief yeah. have Chief tell you it's not no. your job and then go, Brandon. I would pee myself. I don't even know if Chief would ever get to that point, Jamie. I think Chief would just laugh at him. I don't know. I don't know. But I would, it have to be like after a big loss. Like yeah, one where never. they're just terrible and then ask the most obvious question <laughs> and then question him on his decision. No. Chief loves that stuff. It's like when a goal goes past Jordan Bennington and they say, well, what happened on that goal after a bad loss? Bennington, oh. Hey, that's how you get them fired up. Yeah, I'm good. I don't need that in my life. I've had enough of those uh, run-ins for at least the 2021 calendar year. Yeah, but Schilty's way scarier than Baruby. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys have been drinking some of that Mississippi moonshine together. Oh, but, uh, lots of it lately. Going to go ahead and disagree on Jamie, that one. Jamie, <laughs> yes, so we, we came up with a, with a scenario because, of course, BK lost once again in his BK and oh, Ferrario Pick'em wow. Challenge. And so we got to come up with a punishment. How do you like this punishment? And one of our texters came through on this, Jamie. Jamie. I am now 5'11'2 on He's the terrible. 5'11'2. Are you even trying? No. That's the problem. Apparently I am. you've yeah, just given up. On like my that. only good week that I've had was when I went against my picks. Mm. I'm not kidding. You that might tell that you something, BK. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah. You think you'd do it again. So, Jamie, this is what the texter post. So, Brandon has to put ice skates Brandon. on. Brandon, Brandon. And he's got to skate three laps around an ice rink here at Centene. But the catch is Jamie Rivers is chasing him. Well, how long do you want him to skate for? Just well, that's... Just, just hey. like, force him to do the three laps or just, like, two strides oh, no. and bury him? 
Oh no, I want two strides and bury him. But he's got to he's got to complete the three I laps. I would break. I would break. Okay, so BK, we'll change it around. We'll let you do a full lap to get speed up. Yeah. I will stand at center ice on the other side, and you can take a full lap run at me and body check me. No, I love that idea. I, I love that idea. Something. You'll have all the momentum in the it. world. You'll be just and fine. He, and he'll have the pads on too. I'm old. I'm way older than you. I'm old. Would it be wrong for me to just be like banging on the glass going, Jamie, kill him? You got to bang on the glass and yell, shoot! Shoot the puck! There's something here, but I don't know if this is it. I think oh, it's I think like my it. body would break. I think BK, that's it. I'm old and frail. Look at you. You're Have young. you seen me? <laughs> frail? <laughs> I've got a large nose and nothing else on my body. Yeah, but it might break your wow, fall. That's okay. T-Bone, can we click that one off? My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, what's coming up today on the fast lane, my man? Well, we're going to have a lot of fun. Anthony Stalter took the day off, so they've left oh, uh, BT and I with the wheel for the bus, and we're both going to fight over the wheel all day long. It's going to be quite the adventure. Uh, we also have Jake Neighbors coming up at 4 oh, nice. o'clock nice. today. So we're going to talk to the young man uh, about his brief time here in St. Louis, what's going good, what's going bad, what he likes living with Braden Shen. Heck, I want to find out what's going on over there at the <laughs> Shen household. Uh, and then we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. We're going to have a good time. It's Friday, man. Let's have some fun. I'm looking forward to it. The fast lane coming up from 2 to 6. We will be back on Monday at 11. Talk to you guys then here on 101 ESPN. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to Geico.com or contact your local agent today. You're the one who protects the flock, and that requires an eye for detail. Because when safety and well-being are on the line, it's the details that can save lives. Even when no one else is watching, you see everything. Granger gets you, and we're here for you, and all the ones who get it done with a wide range of safety products and solutions, plus board-certified safety consultants here to answer your questions. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.